on today's show. We are getting to know Jake. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And Jake is a, and man, I might mess this up because there's a lot, a two-time NCAA fencing champion, a 2019 U.S. national champ, a member of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic team that actually happened in 2021, right? <laughs> Jake, thank you for coming on, um, answering my message and letting people get to know you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Happy to be here. Yeah, and I forget, I was sitting on the couch, like, you know how you can have, like, the 20 different Olympic channels going, like, yeah. when it's happening, the replays, and I forget what was happening late night, but I saw the fencing, and I don't think you were fencing, but I was like, these dudes got to be different. Like, cause <laughs> yeah, it just... even within the fencing video, they split it up into a, a quad screen, so you can see four different bouts going on at the same time, so... Yeah, you got a lot of lot of action going on. It it seemed so quick twitch, and then when I started like video stalking you, you seem to be like one of the more hype dudes, like like the little like tiger fist bump. You know what I'm saying? Like it just seems yeah. like you're very competitive. And I was like, yeah, man, let me see if I can kind of like be persistent and get him on the pod, man. So I was excited because, and then I'm like looking at your accomplishments, and I'm like this dude's like legit legit man <laughs> i appreciate you saying that yeah 
I always uh, fence better just like with higher stakes. And I've always been a very competitive person growing up. Like even just a, you know, late night card game with the family would get a little intense back like when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, very, very competitive. And I, it's cool that you noticed that. Yeah. We, we like to keep it hype, especially on, on the men's FA team. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is it like, I don't know if fencing is associated with like polo or like a rich sport or like more etiquette kind of a thing. And what I wondered immediately was like, is it disrespectful to be celebratory like that? Or is it, no, nah, man, you can be hype. You can enjoy. Yeah. That's cool that you asked that because I think fencing has a reputation to be more of that super uptight, very polite, like formal sport. And historically, I guess it, it was like that. But, you know, as fencing evolves and, you know, access to the sport increases and more and more countries start to enter the sport and compete in the sport, um, and it's getting a little more mainstream. So you see a lot, a lot more celebrations, a lot more, you know, yeah, just when you're watching it, it, it seems a little bit more like a like a normal sport, quote unquote, um, than like, yeah, the guy with like the big curly mustache and he's like saluting and they, they're all very, very Yeah, right. Polite. And then he like yeah, does this really little like... twirl thing. He puts it to his side and he like <laughs> yeah. bows indignantly and you're like, okay, I guess that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was good to see the energy. And bef- I guess before we get too into it, can I just get, or a, maybe you explain a basic like, the point of fencing is to stab somebody and it seems like they're a three minute clock and it, is it like first to 15 or they're a basic yep. set of rules? Do you mind just giving a little background yeah, on sure. fencing so rules? There's, there's three different disciplines for fencing. I fence something called Epe. All right. That's exactly what you said. Epe is just about whoever hits first gets a point. If we both hit at the same time, we both get a point and it can be anywhere on your body. So you hit with the with the point of your weapon, like the end of your weapon, as opposed to the side. So you can't slash, you have to stab. And yeah, you can hit anywhere. Hand, in the head, chest, legs, feet, doesn't matter. Yeah, I was taken back by the 15. foot. I was taken back by the foot thing. That seemed like a pretty I, I didn't expect that strategy as I was watching the videos, like the low dodge to like grab hit somebody's toe. Yeah, yeah. It works. Yeah, it's open. You can hit it. So some people like defend with their body. They take their whole chest away by leaning back, but they leave their foot further out and you can hit it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut yeah. you off, but like as I was no, watching, that was one of the things where I was like, I always thought it was more like a designated area of chest versus the entire so body. Which the other disciplines the are like that. Saber, you can only hit from the waist up and foil, you can only hit in the torso and the neck, but not, not your face or your arms. So there, there are different target areas for the different disciplines and different scoring rules for the different disciplines. Epe, it's the simplest to understand. It's the easiest to just pick up and do. Like me and you, we can meet up right now and we can fence Epe without much rule explanation. Just it's free free range. You can go anywhere and first one to hit gets a point. That's it. Oh, you don't have to like stay on a side? There's no offsides? Anything like nope, that? No, you have to stay in front of your opponent. So you fence on a long rectangular we call it a strip or a piece um you have your starting lines ref says ready fence and then you have to stay in front of each other facing each other if you pass that would be like off sides and then you have to reset okay. um back to back to your starting lines gotcha um and i guess the reason i was thinking about that again in one of the videos i want to say it was 2016 it was one of the cooler moves i should have wrote down the dude's name it might 
you didn't get hyped, so I didn't think it was for the championship, but it was like the second or third point, the dude dives in at you. You kind of put your chest to the side and you whip your sword. Is it called a sword? Yeah, yeah. Blade, weapon, sword. So you whip the blade around your head and your arms, like your elbows on the top of your head, the blade's now on the other side of your head and you wind up stabbing the dude like almost near his neck and get a point. (laughs) And it was one of the- I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was in 2016 at um, Brandeis University against a, a great fencer named Lewis Weiss in the semifinal of the NCAA championships. Yeah. Okay. Dude. And so sometimes when you end up really close to each other, like you could be just a few inches from each other. You can't actually touch, but you're very, very close. Um, then you would have to do something like, yeah, pull your arm all the way back, maybe go behind your neck or behind your back or something because it's the only way to put the point on at that point. Gotcha. And that's why I was wondering. I wondered why the dude didn't just go through you, but then that makes sense because he's trying to stay in front in order not to. Yeah, exactly. And if if you bump somebody intentionally to kind of stop the action, then you could get a penalty for that. And what do they do for the penalty? Just take away points? Yeah, it's, it's a yellow card first, which is like a warning, kind of like in soccer. And then you could get a red card, which is a point penalty. So let's say you do it twice. First time a yellow card, it's just a warning. Second time a ref gives you a red card, that's a point penalty. So I would be awarded a point um, as opposed to like you getting taken away a point. I would actually get one. And then if it escalates past that, you would just get ejected. Gotcha. And just forfeit. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. But yellows and reds, this is pretty common. Gotcha. Yeah, I was wondering, like, opponent-wise, do you get in people's heads enough to frustrate them where they get agitated and they actually look to get hands-on physical or, like, body-checking yeah, physical? That, that happens. That happens in fencing, believe it or not. Uh, it doesn't have – that sport doesn't have a reputation like that, but people definitely um, itch at each other and know how to get under opponent's skin, and sometimes it can get a little fiery. It never, like, actually comes to blows, very, very rarely, but – it, it'll get hot. What do you do to piss people off? Do you just kind of like just slap at their no, sword? I, that that would like – that's a big no-no. That would be very frowned upon. Like putting the side of the blade into somebody, like people would only do that to each other. Maybe it got some really bad blood or like tensions are really, really high because that it really hurts to get the side of the blade put on you like that. Even with the um, padding, huh? Hmm? Even with the padding, you can feel it. Oh yeah, yeah, you could feel it. the The point doesn't hurt that badly if you're getting hit, you know, in the protective area. Your knees, your shins, your feet, and your wrists like aren't that padded. So sometimes those those hits can hurt. But the side of the blade, like if you were to whip somebody with the side of your blade, I've had somebody do that to me a few times out of anger, like frustration. And yeah, you get a big red welt on you. Um, sometimes it could it could break the skin, like if they hit you really hard. So. Yeah, that that you get ejected for doing that probably. Oh, game over. If they thought you were doing that intentionally, yeah, that would be like a flagrant foul gotcha. in basketball. Yeah, flagrant yeah. too, which seems to be yeah, every yeah. single foul in the playoffs this year. Like <laughs> Nowadays, a flagrant yeah. too, man. But that so, would be flagrant too, like you're gone. Gotcha. <laughs> um, okay, and then and I didn't mean to cut you off, but like, so then, how do you actually win a match? Is it the quickest to fifteen? Do you have to go through so many periods? Yeah, first to fifteen wins. There are three three-minute periods with a one-minute break in between. So at any point, whoever gets a 15, the match just ends no matter how much time is left. But if you go all the way through all of the periods and the time runs out, then whoever's ahead wins. Gotcha. So if we're fencing each other, it's 8-7 and time expires, then I win. Yeah. If it's tied, 
then you would go to a one minute overtime. Oh. And that's just sudden death. First touch wins. Oh, first. Oh, golden goal type stuff. Yeah, exactly. Got you. That, Those are the most exciting, most exciting moments. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I um, had a lot of overtime, like priority matches, they call it over my career. And yeah, they're, they're very exciting. Is it common? Yeah, it's actually pretty common, especially at a high level, because a lot of fencers are, you know, at that level, you're all so good. The margin that separates you is, is very small. And especially in, you, you start every um, tournament with a round robin, which you just go to five touches. So those very, very often go to 4-4, four, four, and it's just, yeah, overtime, sudden death to one. And even in the 15-touch bouts, you'll see a lot of 14-14s or priority matches. Yeah, that was something watching your video. Um, I was surprised that it was so close in like few blowouts. Yeah, eh, there are some blowouts too. It really <laughs> depends. <laughs> It'll be like you got three types of matches, like a 15-14, which is a true blow-to-blow -blow battle where, you know, the difference separating the winner and the loser is, is could have been a penalty early on. It could have been you know, a, a bad call, it could have been anything, really. That that Those are like razor-thin margins. Then you've got like a 15-12, 15-11, which is like a respectable loss. Like, okay, you fenced well, but you did get beaten, and like, yeah, you're eliminated, but you put out a respectable showing. Or you got like a 15-6 or a 15-4, which is, that's just a blowout. <laughs> gotcha. Like, you just didn't stand a chance, you just got embarrassed. <laughs> and I've had my fair share of those too. Definitely lost a few like that. Okay. Yeah, that helps for the um, perspective because that is a weird, I don't know, man, the different sports, like you rate, once you know the sport, you can understand like the margin of victory and what was yeah. close, what was competitive and what was like, ah, it wasn't much of anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, 15-14 would be like a soccer game that went to PKs. Right. Yeah. And then a 15-12 is like a 3-1 win. And a fifteen six would just be like five zero. Yeah, you just that's control. the best I can I can do. No, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You're just in control the whole time. Exactly. Uh, do you have like do you get labeled as having a particular style? Because that was something watching. I couldn't tell if it's so like in basketball you can start holding the ball and like slowing down your offense. In football mm -hmm. you can just run. You're not passing. You know if you're up. But from the few matches I was watching, it didn't seem like you could really just kill clock. It seemed like you had to basically stay on the aggression or on the aggressive yeah. to go to like 15. Like you couldn't be last period 12 and you're like, all right, man, just a minute and a half to kill. Let me dance around. Yeah, you can't. And that was something that I always struggled with actually through my whole fencing career because most fencers and a lot of coaches will tell you, yeah, if you're up like four or five touches, just sit back, try to kill clock and go for a double touch. Remember I said, if you both hit at the same time, you both get a point, right? Uh, so if I'm up 10, five, we score a double. Now I'm up 11, six, like that's better for me. We're getting closer to the ceiling. That touch took a little bit of time. Now you've got less time. You got less room to run. Like that's good. Um, and some people like to fence like that, but I always had a hard time with that, with just sitting back and, a lot of times I felt like if I was up and I tried to do that, kill the clock, dance around, people would figure me out. They'd see a little pattern and that's how I would lose a lead. Okay. So I, yeah, maybe that's what someone would say about my style is like, I, I really wouldn't ever um, just go to the back of the strip and like wait, dance around, try to kill clock. I'm, I'm going to fence. I'm going to fence the whole time. I, I think that would just be more fun. 
<laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly, man. Exactly. I never like these clock games. And yeah, I there's there's something else in fencing we could get a level deeper um, called passivity. So basically, it that rule prevents fencers from just disengaging for the entire time. Because sometimes you have one like really defensive guy who doesn't want to fence. They want to just keep it low score, go to go to overtime. And you got another guy, same thing. So when they get on the strip, they just don't do anything. And they just wait for it to go to overtime and then fence one touch to win. And, and it, sometimes it's a winning strategy, especially when a weaker fencer is fencing a, a stronger fencer. You want to keep the score low. You want to go to that overtime, right? Like, um, it, it, I think that's probably true for any sport. Yeah, um, I mean, dude, if you're overmatched in basketball, you don't want to run. You want to half-court bleed the clock limit possessions. Yeah. I mean, exactly yeah yep so some people like to fence like that i just never did i would i would much rather just just do my thing keep fencing you obviously gotta be mindful of the clock but i was more focused on hitting the guy than on passivity or or, or staying down like keeping the score down or going to one touch something like that is there like a sensor or is it up to the referee's yeah, man. eye yeah, man. to determine yeah there's a sensor okay How so it... you have your blade um, and at the tip of it is a button. So it looks, you could think of it like a tiny little elevator button. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and when it presses into something, it runs down the wire. So there's a wire in the blade that comes down to where your hand is. Where your hand is, you plug a cord into that. You run that cord up your sleeve of your dominant hand into your jacket and then out the back of your jacket. And then you plug that into a machine. So when you watch fencing, you see it almost looks like the fencers are tied to the ground with a little rope. Right? Yeah, dude, Maybe you see, noticed I, that. I thought like so that, that limited your forward mobility or something. Like no, that it's like tethered. it's called a reel, and it's uh, it's like a retractable wire that's kind of on a spring. So no matter how close you are, or how far away you are from it, it stays taut. Um, and that is a scoring the scoring machine. So that allows basically like the ref to see exactly when you hit because once your point gets depressed then the light goes off and that's how you know that a fencer scored a touch and back before before that scoring system yeah you they used to put like red chalk i think on the end of your blade and you'd wear a white uniform same uniforms we wear now and if you got hit then you would see a little red mark on you and the ref would have to like look and see if that red chalk was on your on your white jacket but now we have a much better system. <laughs> Dude, it's so quick. And even um, I think it was the 2016 match that was edited so well because almost after every point, they did like a slow-mo replay so that you could actually appreciate how close it was. But you watch that in real time. Like only way I knew you scored points was when you celebrated. Because to me, it yeah, looked like yeah. the exact same time almost every time. I couldn't imagine judging that by just eyeball. It's a big, that's a big problem in fencing is like being spectator friendly because it is confusing and it's hard to see. I almost think that when they televise fencing, just everything should be in slow-mo, just like you said. The touch happens and then instantly like you got to replay it in slow motion because the motions that you do are so small and the signals that a fencer might give to like give themselves away where they fall into a trap are so minuscule and so tiny that you need to see it in slow motion or you just it's impossible to watch. Yeah. And that goes for me too, by the way. Like when I used to analyze video and like doing scouting and things like that, I would have to, I would be on YouTube and just going through sometimes frame by frame right, to see what's going on because yeah, everything happens very, very quickly and all the physical movements are very small. Yeah. And you can't 
appreciate all that goes into it. Like when I saw that slow-mo of the wraparound behind the header, there was one where dude lunges at you. You actually kind of like side tap his sword and then recoup, take like a little step forward. So you got to notice the balance and the technique of the feet. And then the dude tries to like turn away and miss. And then you like alter from up to lower and you're like, that was half a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the lockout time, man, is a tenth of a second. So if I hit you, okay, you have a tenth of a second to hit me back or you'll get locked out, right? Oh. So if I lunge, I hit you in the chest, a second goes by, boom, then you hit me, it'll only be my light. Yeah. So the the lockout time is very, very, very small. You practically have to hit at exactly the same time for that double touch to happen. Um so yeah, those movements are, are very, very small. And for example, they always teach you keep your arm extended, right? If you pull your arm back for a second, someone's just going to extend, hit your chest, pull their arm back and you're in your toes, mm-hmm. even if you hit them like a second later. Yeah, it's, man, that's, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I try to act like I have a business mindset or frame, but like I want smoke after every point, like at the <laughs> end of your, what did you call it? Not a runway. The strip. strip. The strip. I want smoke that lights up or some sort of cool graphic more so than just like ding. And then I want like a huge TV in the center. And while you guys are getting reset, I want the slow-mo to be Yeah, played. the replay. Yeah, like jumbo. It's a good style. idea. They should let you run the fencing tournaments. <laughs> it's too much. I Dude, I'd blow the budget within whatever. <laughs> on the smoke machine. Yeah. Exactly. Just you have fireworks smoke. and everything. That's when you hit 15. You got to celebrate, right? And then like, yeah. I don't know, you get up by some and then you have to do something to the strip to make it more entertaining, like American Ninja style, where all of a sudden it starts like somebody has to go up a ramp versus not, <laughs> or like it just splits in half. I um Yeah. Do you think fencing could become like a mainstream? So that was one of the things we were talking about is role models before we were recording and like, how common are role models? And I started thinking like, how would you get exposed to fencing? Cause you know, wide world of sports, I don't really remember it. Aside from the Olympics, I never think of fencing. And apparently it's only in the summer Olympics, right? So it's every four yeah. years, like, yep. hey, maybe that you care about fencing real quick. And then it's gone. And I'm like, how do you get the momentum? Could it be something with spectator friendly? I hope so. I mean, Oh, since, since I've started fencing and probably over the last 20 years, fencing has gotten a lot bigger. So there are more NCAA college programs. New Jersey has a big high school circuit now. Um, the national teams are growing again. More and more countries are getting involved in fencing. There are a lot of programs, especially in the United States, um, that are cultivating young fencers and exposing them to the sport. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's sports training in the right direction. Is it ever going to be the NFL? Probably not. But I would hope that fencing could get to the point where people would watch it like they would watch tennis. Okay. Flip on the pro tour. Maybe it's on it's on one of like the, the high channels. Um, <laughs> ESPN and, 7. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. I mean, obviously not the Grand Slams. Like those are all those are all really big. But people yeah. watch like the ATP tour, like some of the, the non-Grand Slam tournaments. Like that's where I think maybe fencing could get to. If you got the right... The right replays like we're talking about, the right explanation, the right framing, you rework some things. Then yeah, I, I think so, especially in the United States. It's a big it's a big NCAA sport. So a lot of colleges recruit for fencing. So you could get a, a college scholarship or you know, you could get a seat at a really good Ivy League university for being on the fencing team. 
So I, dude, that's a good see that that's the level where I think you gotta. It's it's interesting to find like the market zag right. So instead of competing in football, which is saturated, or basketball, or even volleyball, right? Like all these other sports that are larger. If you're more niche and you're good, maybe it elevates you to get into a more exclusive school. Yeah, I mean, there are a few things, right? It's a it's a much smaller talent pool. So you just have a lot fewer kids fencing than playing football, right? But unfortunately, like, I guess that's for a reason because fencing just has that the barrier to entry is very high. You have a lot of expensive equipment that you need. You need a lot of training partners, right? You can't fence by yourself. Um, a lot of high school teams, just like a lot of high schools don't have teams, so you don't get exposed in general. But yeah, it's expensive. You need to pay for private lessons. You have to, most times you have to join a private club. You got to go to, to group classes and there's a ton of expenses. Um, so not everybody has the same access to it, unfortunately. But again, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of organizations in the U.S. that are, that are trying to, to improve that. Peter Westbrook Foundation is one in New York, a good friend of mine from Columbia. Her name's Nzinga Prescott. She's, um, she started a foundation doing the same thing. Um, so more and more young kids are getting access to it and, yeah, the scholarships are there. That, uh, so I'm a middle school basketball coach, and I'm trying to think of like what's the expense. And the school already has the gym, right? So basically, it's like, hey, Sean, here's three hundred bucks. Do you need some basketballs? Do you need us to replenish your pennies? And we'll get you uniforms <laughs> once every like four years, right? So they yeah. pay me a coaching salary, and then they have to organize buses to go to other schools. But they all have gyms, so they all have teams, right? So the infrastructure is kind of there when you're talking about like sensors and you're talking about protective gear where people are getting stabbed and like masks that you want to make sure like sharp objects don't go through. Do you have any idea like what the cost is like ballparkish? If like people are, it's expensive, like 300 bucks is going to get you like one set of equipment for one kid. Okay. Yeah, probably. If that, it, it's very expensive. And I just got super, super lucky. So my fencing story is I, I grew up in a suburb outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And I went to public school there and my gym teacher, her name was Pixie Rome. When I was in sixth grade, she taught sixth grade phys ed and health, right? She was a fencer in college. She went to Temple university mm. and she fenced. And so part of our gym class curriculum was fencing. So I don't know how she did it. Maybe I can connect you guys and if you could ask her like how she got all this equipment, I think, yeah, some from the budget, a lot from donations from other clubs and things like that. So we, we did have equipment to fence with and yeah, one week of class was fencing. We, we did the pacer test. We, you know, ran track, we played basketball and then we fenced for a week. And she, so she exposes like hundreds and hundreds of kids a year to fencing. And obviously it's not for everybody. But some kids really like it. And so me and a group of my friends, we really, really liked it. She had a club after school. We would use the same equipment and go, you know, twice a week to the cafeteria, set up the strips like in the lunchroom, fence with each other. She would give some lessons. And that's how I got introduced to it. And I, I was there with her for, for years until, you know, I went to high school, started taking it more seriously, started going to a private club. Um, but those are the kind of coaches in the U.S. who – who are, are creating fencers by just introducing it to people. Super grassroots. Yeah, totally grassroots. And right. she just loves fencing. She was a fencer in college. And she said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to teach fencing at school. I don't know how she got all the equipment together, but that was really, really special. 
Yeah, I remember there was archery when I was in like sixth, seventh grade, and then it was gone within like a year or something. And I look back now and I'm like, I can't believe they would do archery, right? Like it's just yeah. so dangerous. Like dodgeball is getting outlawed in different gyms, you know? Really? Oh yeah, dude. And um, because it's bullying. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Like, was it legit? fencing it wasn't like pool noodles it was actual no this was legit fencing like we started with learning the footwork and we started by like learning about blade safety right like everybody if the points are up off the ground you gotta have your mask on Gosh. right no points up below, above your waist without your mask on um so we learned about that and then yeah we had real real blades how big was the gym class uh maybe like 20 kids or so i don't remember okay. but we would all stand in a line and then she would come and, you know, teach you how to straight thrust, um, to the body. And then we would learn the different parries, which are like blocks. And we went through all that. We learned the footwork, we learned the scoring. And then the, I mean, the most fun was when she would just let us fence, hook them up like after school and we could fence each other. So she was always supervising and nobody, nobody ever got hurt while I was there. Yeah. Well, I think if you're, I don't know, to me, if you're taking the interest and you're kind of learning how to do it right, especially from like the club level, I could see maybe in gym, a little whatever, 13-year-old dude gets excited and just starts trying to like whack somebody, right? But if you're at the club part and you're protected, uh, I feel injury is pretty limited, the chance for injury. I, I would agree. I think if you have like a football program at your school, then the fencing program would not be the most dangerous sport. Yeah, yeah no doubt, right? You don't, you don't really th – there are always injuries. Um, and sometimes there are some bad injuries in fencing, but very few related to the actual blade. Yeah. Um, most times like people, the most common is probably like sprained ankle, torn ACL from just stepping wrong basically, or like yeah. getting run over. But blade injuries are, are pretty rare. I did have a friend um, or I knew a guy who practiced at my club and a blade broke because these are steel blades, right? And they're, they're pretty flexible, but sometimes they snap. And a blade snapped, and it went through his backhand. So your backhand is the only part of your body that's completely exposed with no protection. You don't have a glove on it. And I don't know what happened. I wasn't there, but the blade went right through his hand. <laughs> and he was fine. He went to the hospital. He got it taken care of. But, like, that's, like, like the most gruesome example, but it's very uncommon. God. Yeah, I noticed that in the videos, too, and I wondered, why do they leave that backhand un uncovered? Why not just throw a glove on it? Yeah, nobody does it. There was one guy I remember on the Cuban national team named Quintero who wore two gloves. It was cool when he did it. <laughs> so, it was cool. I can't lie. That was cool. Like that that's like But it's, you just don't do it. Yeah, like Allen Iverson wears the sleeve on his elbow, you know, and like it's like, oh dude, that's cool and it yeah. starts a trend. So like why not just get the protection? I don't get it. I never I never like your backhand at a high level, no one's hitting you in the backhand. Gotcha. So yeah. it's just one of those things. So you would do it just purely for that style. was like a freak accident that happened to that guy. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um the the blades themselves, like when you were in middle school, did they have the centers on them or was it up to the teacher or the club coach to like determine who got the points? Yeah, good good question. So when we first started, we didn't have the electric system because those that equipment is much more expensive. So we started with basically the same blade, but just with a rubber ball on the end of the weapon instead of the electric point. Okay. And so the, the pixie would watch us and say like who scored. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Like if you get hit, yeah. um, that's to like to first get started. But then, you know, as you get more into it and then, then you would maybe have an electric blade. 
Yeah, and see, that's where I wonder about like the scalability for high school programs who are committing yeah. money. Like, are those? Do you, are you familiar? Well, now I'm ask, acting like you're a freaking salesman for these things. But like, are you familiar with how much a system would cost? Is that common knowledge? Let's, I'm just gonna look it up right now. Let's see. Look at this real time, Joe Rogan. Yeah, real time. Tape. Joe Fencing blade Jamie. not wired. Yeah, maybe maybe a blade that's not wired would be like thirty bucks, like a, like a crappy one. Okay. For a beginner, maybe even less. Um, yeah, that's like cheap lacrosse stick. That's like cheap field hockey stick. Yeah. That's right on par yeah. with. Yeah, and you really only need one of them. the The issue is a scoring system. Yeah, right. Um, that's what I'm thinking. But you could probably get used, like used on eBay or something. Like I'm looking here. There's a there's a reel for sale for like twenty bucks, but you can also get these wireless scoring things that are like fifty bucks. You you can put it together for Dude, sure. That cheap, fifty bucks for this wireless yeah, but, sensor. But really, what you need is the are the clothes like the uniform for every kid, gotcha. because that's like how you make sure nobody gets hurt. Makes sense. Those things are basically bulletproof. It's like Kevlar, so the blade like. It's not going to penetrate it. There's no chance. Gotcha. So you can get hit really hard. Like a 250-pound guy can stick the blade in you as hard as he can, right in your chest, and you might get a little bruise, but like it barely hurts. Did it take you a while not to be a flincher? Or are you just born not a flincher? I wish I I wish I like had some videos of me fencing back in like sixth, seventh grade. <laughs> um Maybe I was flinching back then, but not anymore. You can't flinch. Yeah, right. I, I would There's imagine. a lot of fakes in fencing. It's all it's all about fakes, um, and like trying to see what your opponent's going to do. So if somebody fakes at you and you flinch, like they know that you have a automatic reaction to something that they can reproduce, and then they'll just exploit that. Gotcha. It just yeah. seems so unnatural to have something coming at you and you just trust this equipment. Like the sharp eye, it seems anti-evolutionary, right? Like, oh yeah, you just never think about that. You just get used to it, man. Like, you just you're not worrying about like getting hurt. You're just trying not to get scored on. That's the real thing you got to worry about. Yeah, right. No, I mean, uh, but, I mean, at at like an Olympian level, right? People are hitting you with a very very soft touch. Really? Like, Is it because oh, they're yeah. more reserved to like strike counter? Because you need your movements to be very small, so they're harder to see. And when you have really, really good fencing technique and a you know a good blade in your hand, my teammates will would like flick my hand, and you're barely gonna feel it. Huh? You'll so, feel a little like tap, like someone hit you with a Q-tip. Gotcha. That's the way you want to be, nice and light. Yeah. Oh. If you're tense, if you're like really trying to punish somebody, it's just way easier to see, and you're gonna. You'll probably get scored on. You get blocked, like counterattack. It's just easy to see that way. If you really like pull back because you want to just like wail on somebody, then you're gonna lose a point. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, man. Because you want to, if you get that aggression and anger, what's even in golf, right? Like, what do you typically do when you get upset? Is you try harder, and that can work in a lot of sports, right? Basketball, football, like run faster. Football, hit harder. Boxing, MMA. You know, like just ah mm -hmm. grunt. But it's it seems like for you guys it's just efficiency. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it would be the opposite for fencing. Normally, at least for me, when I would get frustrated or I would, someone was getting under my skin, like we were talking about earlier, right? Maybe someone's really 
really getting to me. You have to keep it, keep it calm. So deep breaths run through like a quick meditation. Just, all right, you got to stay, got to stay reserved. Yeah. If once you score, then you go crazy. Yeah. Once your life is off, then you can celebrate, you can scream, you can jump around, do whatever you want. But after the ref says go, like you need to be super tight, super, super tight. Going faster or going stronger doesn't necessarily help you. That makes sense. Are, does the Zen part kind of come easy to you? The meditative, relax, slow down in the moment? Yeah, I think I always had that. Um, I worked so my coach when I went to college, um, his name is Dr. Aladar Kogler. I started working with him um, when I went to school in 2012. And he was he was my coach after college as well for the five years leading up to the Tokyo Olympics. And he he really preaches meditation, um, calmness, detachment from you know your results and just focusing on being in the moment, being mindful. And you know he calls it the flow state. You want to be barely thinking about what you're doing. You just want to let it happen. Like you put in 10,000 hours of work for the, you know, nine minutes that you're competing, you just let your mind and your body take over. Um, and so we worked on that a lot over the years in our lessons and our, in our sessions. So that definitely, definitely helped. How do you, how do you work on that? Do you actually like get on a yoga mat and like he's chanting stuff and you're like repeating it to yourself or they're just takes you straight to up. sleep straight up yeah seriously it's that yeah oh it's it's literally that i'm actually surprised <laughs> that you like nailed it that way <laughs> Wait, so like what a typical training session would look like with him so i come into the gym um do a little warm-up we chat for a few minutes then we do a lesson maybe like 30 minutes to an hour one-on-one -on -one, just working on technique okay and he, he is a very traditional hungarian fencing style um focusing really on the basics so we're doing like rudimentary stuff over and over and over and over again until it's completely perfect um so that that's kind of the way that he does it yeah big on the basics but then after every lesson yoga mat lay down and we would do a guided you could think of it as like a guided meditation for like four or five minutes after every single lesson and that became so natural to me and i got so used to that and you know after i could go from heated gassed up to completely calm, low heart rate, relax, like feeling good in just a few minutes. Um, and I would use it at a competition all the time. Let's say I had a really intense bout, 14-14, I won it over time, I went crazy, slammed my stuff, screaming like going nuts. And then I had to get ready for my next bout. I could do that same routine that I did with Aladar after every lesson and just immediately calm down, get back in the mindset to, to start the next one. So it was like specific things he would remind you of like deep breath in three four yep. deep breath out like that real simple kind of stuff yeah super super simple focus on your breathing so we would do um yeah attention focus meditation where you're just basically focusing on your breath and you, you can't really keep that up for very long yeah you can't really focus truly focus on your breath for more than a few minutes without spacing out so we would just keep it to that um, we would do body mindfulness meditation where you're basically just for a few minutes, like focusing on each quadrant of your body and like being aware of any feelings that you have there. Um, yeah, we did a bunch of stuff like that. 
Very, very useful. Dude, that's just being... And then we... No, go ahead. Yeah, so so that's like what we would do after the lesson together, but he was big on um, regular meditation as well, like outside of the lesson, and that would be... He always said to do it two times a day for 20 minutes. Normally, like, I would do it once a day um, on a good day, <laughs> but it, it definitely, definitely helped, and um, yeah, I'm still doing it. When you meditate, do you like it's stupid to be like, do you get upset about where your mind goes, or do you just accept the thoughts where your mind goes for that yeah, much long, so for that long of a meditation period? The meditation Aladar always taught me to do is called transcendental meditation. So you have a mantra that you repeat in your head over and over and over again. Same word. Just over and over and over and over again. And naturally, sometimes like you'll just start thinking about other stuff. It's just that's just how it goes. And he would always say like, yeah, that's going to happen. But once you notice yourself thinking about something, like just gently come back to your mantra. Like don't freak out. Don't get frustrated that like you spaced, just bring it back. Keep repeating the mantra. No big deal. It's natural to have like a distracting thought, but you want to just come back to the mantra. And are you geeky enough to like measure your heart rate during these times? Is that part of the goal to see how low you can get? to like below a sleep state kind of thing or am I overthinking that? You're not overthinking that. I don't think there. ah, it's tough. Like if I asked him that, he'd be like, no, there's no goal. Like there's no goal with meditation. <laughs> like, um, just, you know, you just want to like be free and just free of any thought. That's, that's what he would say is meditation. So even like if you're walking, he would say if you're walking or you're doing yoga or something where, you know, you're not really thinking about anything or even you're fencing, like I said earlier, right. And you're just letting it happen. No thought that would be, meditation that's i guess the goal is to like be free of thoughts yeah. um, but definitely like i mean bro sometimes like i'd be meditating and i would just fall asleep yeah let's well, be real like if i had two training sessions i'm like all right i'm gonna try to like meditate tonight like then i'm just out and I just wake up like six hours later like oops i fell asleep right. <laughs> like that would totally happen marathon yeah. meditating yeah that that's where the no thought part is really what i wonder the most about in meditation it's like even just saying the word, isn't that the thought? It just, the meditative thing, it seems so hard to define when people are like, yeah, I meditate. And it's like, oh, so you just think yeah. in your head? No, I don't think. And it's like, well, <laughs> it can't be silence. Like, do you actually yeah. feel silence in your mind? I don't know, man. That's why you need a good teacher. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got to get in touch with Aladar. I've never, <laughs> I doubt. He's a legend, man. He, He's uh, turning 90 this year. He has had a co he's had a student in like so many Olympic games. I can't even count them. Countless national champions, countless NCAA champions. He's a, he coaches all three weapons, boy, Levy saber. He's a living legend. What's super interesting to me was the fact that it seems like he's just like, Hey, here are the basics. Let's just make sure we do them right. Where the thing I noticed so much in like youth sports um, again, in my small pocket in Southern Delaware is like, it's always like, go, what's the next move? What's the next level? And like, even basic, like shooting form, like kids will, will not know how to like pivot, but they know how to do like step back threes. And yep. you're like, it's, that seems so backwards, man. But like, that's the rush, I guess, maybe because they see it modeled for them, which is why they want to emulate that. And it almost, and that's exactly right. 
Yeah, it makes and, me wonder that if like that's what he's thing. always shying away against. Like, don't work on this. You need to work on like just learning how to do a straight thrust or how to just lunge. And I would get pissed sometimes. I'd be like, come on, Aladar. Like, I'm eighth in the world. I'm ranked eighth in the world. Like, I want to stop doing straight thrusts. And he's like, well, your straight thrust sucks. So we're not going to stop doing straight thrusts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if you're eighth in the world. Like, you don't know how to do a straight thrust. And we're not going to, if you don't want to learn how to do a straight thrust, then you're not going to take lessons from me. That's it. I'd be like, all right, well. I, you you call my bluff. Let's do this straight thrust. <laughs> <laughs> that was a regular occurrence. Yeah, he would. And props to him, because no matter how like annoyed I would get, or no matter if I had just won NCAA championships, or I medaled at a World Cup, or I had just come like last at a tournament, we were doing the same shit in the lessons, man. Yeah, didn't matter. He just wanted. He just knew like what you had to learn. He would never let you off the hook. You're just working on that stuff, no matter what else is going on. If I was like almost 200, like packing tons of muscle, or I was lean, it, it didn't matter. He was like, "We are just working on the basics," and I'm so glad I did 10 years with him that way. So glad I did. And believe it or not, Aladar only saw me compete twice in that 10 years. Because he was He's so- like, "I don't need to see you compete. I'll watch the video. Like, I'll get enough, but I know what you need to learn." That's kind of crazy too then. So yeah, like no in-game, were there in-game adjustment strategies, things that you would work on in practice? Or was it really just that true flow state of your body will know how to respond to whatever's going on? Yeah, we would would discuss the tactics. Like I knew, you know, that certain adjustments you would need to make in the bout, but he was really big on, you know, you need to learn how to do that yourself. So... If I'm behind you screaming, you know, oh, now you need to like do second attention prior post, then how are you going to know when you need to do second attention prior post? You have to figure that out for yourself. And so he, he, he wouldn't, it's called strip coaching or like on the, on the ground coaching. So he would, he was big on self-reliance. And then, yeah, if you couldn't make it to a tournament, like I was fine. I could handle it myself. So I'm pretty thankful for that as well. Yeah, as I'm thinking about it too, it seems the action in fencing, if you're de- waiting or depending on a coach to yell the move, I feel like you're you're basically fucked because <laughs> it's gonna happen <laughs> so quick. Like once he sees it, exactly. he registers it, he yells it to you. The sound gets to your ears. Your body reacts to that sound. You go to jab, and it's been like, wait, we already reset because the point was yeah. Clear. It, it's a like gross oversimplification, but you, sometimes I like to explain fencing like rock, paper, scissors, because you're trying to anticipate what the other person is going to do. And there's a limited set of moves. So if you're really good at rock, paper, scissors, like you would probably be good at fencing. So huh. if, if we both throw rock, right? Yeah. And then I, you have a coach behind you who goes, oh, like, Sean, he just threw rock. You should throw scissors next. Then I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw a rock again. And then I just (laughs) throw a rock and I beat you. Like that was always so funny at tournaments when coach would scream like, oh, you know, he's, he's doing a disengage. You got to counterattack into that. And you're like, all right, here comes the fake disengage. Here comes your counterattack, like better post. That's all me. So you have to be able to do it yourself. Like you can't rely on the coach. People like trying to survive, get to the one minute break so they can talk to the coach. It's, I think it's a lot harder to do it that way. Interesting. I, I like the resilient and the fact that you're by yourself now that's making like the importance for the meditation make sense, make more sense. 
Because if it is really you and it is really you problem solving and being on your own, you want to be able to have control of your mind like that to exactly. make those decisions. You nailed us. Yeah. God, that guy is smart. Amazing. He's probably <laughs> the, the greatest fencing coach in the world. And nine, in my opinion. And 90 years old, man. Like, is, what do you consider Nine-zero. running for president? I take it like, dude, we yeah. worry about Biden being 70. What? I think Biden's like 77 and we're like, Oh, he's over the hill. He's too old. Like this dude's 90. He's, still 90, he's sharp and he's giving fencing lessons every day. Yeah. See, that's the key. You just got to keep in to something that's challenging. Yeah, exactly. He is in great shape. Like he does yoga. He can do a headstand. He works out every day. Lift, lifts weights. He's, he's amazing. It, the, you had said something about like whether I'm lean or whether I'm like 200 pounds does must like, I don't know how heavy the suit is and how you train to deal with like the restrictions or the extra weight and maintain quickness, but is like weightlifting. I don't want to call you like a sissy or whatever, but like, do you guys focus more on like flexibility over than like, bro, watch what I squat. Let me get on this rack. Is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Everyone's got a different, a different uh, way to do it. Um, so for example, like I was on the national team one year with an absolute beast guy is a monster in the gym. I don't even know like what he could, he can lift, but it's more than me or you <laughs> dude is huge. Right. And another teammate of mine, like doesn't lift ever. They're both amazing fencers. So fencing is an individual sport. So everybody has a different strategy for me. Like I experimented with different things. Um, I was maybe I'm six feet tall. I was maybe 160 in college, 165. Whoa. Um, and then I tried to bulk up a little bit. Post pandemic, I was like pushing 190, 195. That was, I mean, that was almost you know four or five years later. But I bulked up a little bit, and I found my fighting weight around like 175. So that's like maybe two conditioning days a week, two lifting days a week. Okay. But but. More traditional lifts, like it was what I would do. Bench press, squat, back squat, front squat. I did a lot of RDLs, box jumps, um, shoulder press, curls, rows. Like just totally normal, normal weightlifting. Nothing super heavy, but I always like to have a little more, little more muscle on me. Got and does the what is the little more muscle? How do you see the little more muscle helping you? Because if strength doesn't matter, I guess that's why I'm thinking about strength. This, strength right? matters. Strength matters for sure. Uh, well, I guess um, what I meant is like the strength of your strike isn't as important. Oh yeah, That's that what... doesn't matter. But like when you're pairing somebody, you want to have a little strength behind you. Um, you you do something called a beat where like you might knock somebody's blade away for a second to displace their point before you hit. So you need a little strength for that. Um, and you're fencing a lot. If you do well, you're fencing all day. You start at you know 8 a.m. The finals might finish around like 6, 7 p.m. So you got to be in good shape or, you know, you're going to get to the round of 16, cramp up and flame out. Um, So I always prioritize that. Um, And to answer your question, I just had better results when I was like around 175. So like, all right, that's our mistake. (laughs) (laughs) The market, the market has dictated my weight. That's my weight. Trial, trial and error. I found it. Yeah. How heavy is the blade? Like, does your arm actually get tired of holding it? It's maybe a pound. Oh wow! Uh, could be could be a little heavier. Your arm doesn't really get tired of holding it, but I mean, dude, I spent so much time with my epee in my hand that you know when you're really in peak 
peak training, you stick that blade in your hand and it just feels so natural. You don't worry about like, oh, it's, you know, it's heavy. I'm holding like a, you know, a five pound weight in my hand or anything like it. You have so much control over the point of your weapon. It's just like an extension of your arm. Makes sense. And then how much does the typical suit weigh? Like, no clue. Oh, really? It's, it's actually kind of like the uniform is a little annoying. It gets very, very hot under there. I bet. Um, you get like, you get pretty sweaty when you're fencing. Yeah. You can't like rip the sleeves off or like go shirtless or whatever. Like you got to always have like the t-shirt on, you wear an underarm protector, you wear the jacket on top of that. And then you've got um, the pants and like, you got to wear long socks to protect your shins. Like, yeah, it gets hot. Yeah. See, yeah, that makes sense. I'm surprised that the weight of the suit doesn't come into, uh, doesn't come into play. Like doesn't mess with you. Some of the high end, like the really high end fencing equipment is pretty light. Um, so it, it's imagine like you could have a cotton, like a super thick cotton t-shirt, but then you could also have, you know, a nice thin Nike, like dry fit shirt. Yeah. So the, the higher end fencing stuff is more like that. And I always fence in like the super, super light whites. Um, the company makes it. I love them. They're really light and they would hurt way more to get hit. Cause it's like, it's like just thin enough to pass the like regulations, but not thick enough that it like really, really protects you. Uh, but I like fencing that stuff better. I just had better range of motion. Yeah. We'll get less sweaty. Yeah. And I almost wonder like psychologically, if you know, the pain is like the possibility of pain is there on top of being competitive, just some natural instinct in you makes you more like, like trying not to get hit. Yeah. Like, like, like I was Probably trying to think not. of a word to say like more better, you know, but like just your natural survival instinct. Like it seems like a real fight on top of a competition. Cause you're like, damn, I'm getting struck. Like I actually feel this. I'm not impervious. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that plays a part. Maybe really like getting eliminated from the tournament. That's what you want to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, <laughs> where the real instinct is yeah just don't don't get eliminated yeah i don't know i, I wish I, don't know. I, I would it'd be interesting if you could throw some um whatever like brain neuron measurements in there to see if people's parts of their brain fired differently in different suits when they felt the pain and somehow mm. that was like an added advantage just because again like i i maybe i've been listening too much jordan peterson and i'm like over analyzing shit but it just I feel like that would give you an edge, to be honest with you. Maybe. Um, who knows? I'm not a scientist, so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or am I? I just play one on a podcast. <laughs> um, was it a big deal equipment-wise to be like an Olympian, to be like on Team USA? Do you get that much better fencing equipment or no? Like upgraded from college when you started representing the country? Yeah. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> so we talked earlier, like, it's really hard to get started in fencing. Like a real good set of equipment head to toe could be like 1500 bucks. And that's only if you have like one Epe. And I, I went to the Olympics with 10. 10? Okay. 10. Seems expensive. So <laughs> it's very, very expensive. Hey, I just wanted to make sure that I had enough no matter what. <laughs> but it's, it's super expensive. So when you're starting out, it's tough because probably like, yeah, if you're 13, 14, your parents have to pay for that. Um, it can be very difficult. Once you get to college, if you get recruited D1 or, you know, to one of the, the big fencing programs, then a lot of your stuff is paid for. Um, and the, the, the super 
you know, well-known good programs are going to give you basically the best stuff that you can get. So like the uniform that I wore in college was comparable to what I wore for the Olympics. Gotcha. The trick is when you graduate college, like I did, but you're not on the national team yet. And then you got to fend for yourself. <laughs> Parents aren't paying for it anymore. Like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta work, pay the bills, but you gotta, you gotta get the fencing equipment too. And then eventually like, yeah, you make the team, maybe you get an equipment sponsor, you get a deal and then you don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, there's equipment spot. See, that's something I'm completely ignorant to. So then it's, the equipment sponsor and the deal. So it would be like the equivalent of like, oh, I'm a Nike sponsored athlete. I'm an Under Armour sponsored athlete. And then they're yeah, sending exactly. Things. And there are fencers who had Nike deals. Um, I had a, a deal with a fencing equipment company that would give me fencing specific equipment, right? There's not many of them. Um, but that was great because, yeah, I didn't have to pay for my stuff. Oh, I broke a blade. I can go pick up another one, need a new uniform. Like, yeah, no problem. Don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And then Team USA and US Fencing, they also provided like some training equipment, um, apparel, like not really fencing equipment, but like stuff to work out in. Gotcha. That's got to be some really sweet. Like all I have are like these free dry fit $8 t-shirts that I go for jogs in <laughs> and like old yeah. basketball shorts. I couldn't imagine like if you go to like Nike and actually buy a training shirt, it's like $30, $40. And I'm like, I don't even want to sweat that thing up. You know, like I don't want to make yeah. it bad. So I couldn't imagine. That's how it felt in the stuff they gave me at the Olympics. So at the Olympics, they gave me two, they gave everybody two giant Nike duffel bags, like full of goodies, Ralph Lauren, Nike, like all kinds of stuff. And I didn't want to wear it because right. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to mess it up. Um, but yeah, eventually like I cracked it open more and I gave a lot of it away to like friends and family. But yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of that. Can can I go back to the Y10? Because I'm super curious. It seems so bulky and you were like, I just wanted to make sure. Is it pretty common that like stuff gets torn, those outfits or like a blade penetrates it and then you have to like change? Oh, well, my, out, my uniform, like the jacket and the pants, I only brought two of those. Just oh. one that I would fence in and one like to practice in because okay. those like very rarely fail. Nothing, nothing really going to go wrong with those. Um, but blades, they're very temperamental. So... I fence, you fence with blade for a few months, it gets broken in, it's really nice and you, you're used to it and you like it. But right around that time is usually when it breaks. <laughs> it snaps in half, the steel. And there's no coming back from that. Um, so I, I brought a lot of blades with me to the Olympics to make sure I had you know, some that felt a certain way, some that felt a little bit different, and a few backups in case one of them broke. And of course, at the Olympics, like I only broke one blade. So gotcha. I didn't need them. Yeah, It always seems like when you have plenty of blades, you're not breaking blades. Right. But now but when you, you show up to a tournament with two on like the first touch of the day snaps, now you're down to one, like you're in big trouble. <laughs> gotcha. How do you, it, when you break in a blade and I don't even know if like, this is a real question or not, but like, I'm thinking of the wobble. Is that the biggest yeah. thing? Like, do you, are you trying to keep it firm? Or are you trying to understand how much it wobbles? I, I know you were talking about your coach striking straight, but I imagine there's still wobble in, where the point is if you have to be that precise. So Ebe blades are forged into a V. Okay. Okay. So they really only bend like a rainbow. They won't bend side to side. They bend like straight. Uh, okay. Right. So it, it's not like a, if you're holding a pool noodle and you push it against the wall, it might make a U, but it might make an upside down U or it might go out to the side or whatever. Right. Um, 
with an epee blade, basically, it's only going to bend in that one direction. But breaking it in, they come they come in different stiffnesses, soft, medium, hard. And I always like my blades super, super stiff. So, for example, I would go to the retailer. I, they had 100 blades there that were the hard, like, class. And I would tr- I would feel every single one. Push them into the ground. Like, feel which ones. Because there's still a little bit of difference, even in the category. Find, like, three or four of the stiffest ones that were in there. And those are the ones that I would buy. Um, and then you got to break them in. And you just do that by fencing with them or taking your lesson. And I always liked a little tiny bend, basically, right at the end of the tip. That's where, where it felt the best. And But it takes a little while to get into it. Like, if you handed me a brand new blade that I'd never been fenced with, I could tell immediately. Huh. It feels very different in your hand. Is is there, like, a, um, a regulation between how much you can manipulate a standard? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a maximum curve that you can have in your blade end-to-end. I don't remember exactly how many millimeters it is, but you can't just like be out there with a, with a giant like hook. <laughs> it has to be like relatively straight, but you do are, you are allowed a little bit of a bend there. Gotcha. Okay. That, yeah, that's, um, I don't know, man, it, it's kind of a geeky question, but it's, to me, it's interesting when like elite athletes, the little intricacies or idiosyncrasies, the things that they notice that get them comfortable you know, and make them yeah. feel confident in their ability to perform. Yeah. Blades are a big one. Like the feel of your blade, it just matters so much. Like a lot of guys, sometimes they'll get their like bags lost on the airline on the way to the tournament. Oh, and if your blades don't make it, you're in big trouble. Okay. <laughs> you're going to have to fence with like all new stuff that you've never used before. And it's just very hard. Yeah. Cause it's so technical. It's so minute. Like it's so detailed. Yeah, it's tough without without your own equipment. Like I had a big thing with my shoes. I always had to wear these Adidas, these like blue Adidas shoes that came out when I was a kid. I got my first pair. I loved them, <laughs> and they discontinued them in two thousand eight. And I bought as soon as they discontinued, them, I bought like ten pairs. So I was like, these are just the fencing shoes that like I need to have on my feet at all times. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's funny the little things like that. Dude, that's what I wanted to ask you with like the pivoting and the lunging. Do you get into, it goes back to working out. Do you get into, like, cause you had said box jumps, more like explosive movements. Do you ever get trained by like people who are sprinters where it's like, Hey, this is how you get off a block in order to lunge quicker. Yeah. Um, and again, everyone does it differently. Right. But I used to do sprints with a Olympia, a 2016 Olympian named Jason Pryor. And Epe as well. We did a lot of uh, track workouts. Um, less like full-blown sprinting, like 100 meters. We would focus on basically like keeping up a quick pace for anywhere from two and a half to three minutes, which would end up being like a little, an 800 or a little longer, right? Um, because that's how long a fencing period is. Okay. So we would try to try to do it that way. And we, we did that for a long time and it, and it worked out. Um, I did a lot of ladder agility too. Um, like work on the agility ladder. That's I, I found that to be the most helpful exercise for fencing. Just really helps you with you know awareness of where your feet are and quick change of motion or change of direction. Gotcha. Yeah. Who developed? But the, explo- uh, go ahead. Explosivity is is definitely like super important. Who developed your ladder routine? Did you just Google it? You found one that you were comfortable on your own. So in college, actually at Columbia there was a, our strength and conditioning coaches, um, Aaron and Ahmed, they 
kind of introduce us to the ladder. And I just, yeah, they gave us a routine. It was good. And I just kept doing it. Gotcha. Yeah. That's something, um, that I'm always surprised just messing with kids in basketball is like how hard it is for some kids even to figure out how to jump rope. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you should not be this uncoordinated and it takes <laughs> them so long to just get the rhythm of basic jump and rope and like not be a double jumper or like god help them if you gotta go two feet one foot left foot right foot front back left foot right yeah. foot. like they'll they'll slap themselves it's um but it's your foundation you know like and I, we're i'm not even talking about like world-class athletes like yourself but like it's the foundation so it's interesting to hear that's again just something basic that people who care about that stuff like take it seriously it seems like it can pay off Definitely. Can, you'd said something and you'd say a lot of things, but I wanted to go back to, you didn't go straight from, I guess that makes sense now looking at the timeline, like 2016 was your NCAA championship and then 2019 national champ. So you didn't get jumped right into a USA team. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way it goes for a lot of men's EPE and women's EPE fencers. EPE specifically, you peak a little bit later. So it can take a little while after you graduate to make the team. And it's a big challenge in fencing. Um, That's like the biggest barrier, I think, to making the Olympics, basically, is you graduate college, you have all the support, you know, you're living in the dorm, you got your dining hall, food, you got your coach, you got like all these resources, you got your practice set up, all of a sudden you graduate fully on your own. You got to work, you got to pay rent. You got to find a new club. You got to find a new way to train. You got to find a way to pay for all this fencing stuff. And if you can't make that work, then you can't go to competitions and you can't make it onto the national team. And once you make it on the national team, then you're good, right? Then all the travel's paid for. Um, things get much easier once you're on the team. Uh, but it takes a little while to get there, and that that's a that's a big challenge for people trying to make it. Um, so I didn't that I didn't make it the team um, my first year out of college. So I graduated. I trained. Um, that summer I was on the circuit for a year, but I didn't make the team in 2017. Um, I did make it in 2018, the following year, like you said, I I won national championships. Um, that's when that was like my best season, 2019. That's when I was top 10 in the world. I won a couple medals on the international circuit, made the 2019 national team, and then carried that to the 2020 Olympic team. But that bridge is, is really tough. Luckily for me, like it was only one year, but some people could go three, four years or a whole cycle, um, you know, on their own before making the team. Why, when, when you say like you kind of late bloomer or later, like you get better as you get older, it sounds stupid, but like, why, why aren't you peaking if you're, cause you're graduating college, like 21, 22 ish, right? Yeah. Pretty close to your physical, I guess true physical peaks like 25, 26. Yeah. I would say because epi fencing is, mixture of you know physical performance and experience and your mental game and your tactics right so a lot of times you know a 34 year old vet who's been fencing for 25 years who's seen it all who's been in every possible game situation multiple times like those guys do really well so it's a it's a lot of experience and you know it's fencing right like you probably can't run a marathon sub two hours for your whole life. You just can't, but you could fence a fencing bout like until you're 40, like a competitive fencing bout. Okay. Similar to golf then. Yeah. You like can play for dudes, a very long time. Yeah. Have decade long primes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there are 
guys, you know, in their twenties, like early twenties who are top in the world. But most of the really, really, you know, good world-class FA fencers are, are a little older. Yeah. Okay. That's just kind of what, uh, what we observe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at the top ten right now. Um, number one in the world is 25, but number four is 36. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that's a gap. I mean, like you would think that's a big gap. Yeah, that's over the hill, or unless he's like the LeBron James of fencing, that's able to keep that kind of peak up. Yeah, he kind of is. He won the Olympics. He he's pretty oh. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you go against him in the Olympics? Did you match up with him? Uh, no, no, I, I fence him many times, actually, um, because he's in our, our zone, so we compete against him pretty regularly, but I didn't I didn't draw him at the Olympics. Gotcha. I did draw another Olympic champion at the Olympics um, from South Korea. Yeah? He was the, yeah, he was the 2016 champ, and he took me out. Like, actually eliminated, eliminated you? He or? eliminated me. Oh, dude. <laughs> Want to relive the pain or move on? Ah, I mean, it was a it was a tough bout. He's just a, he's a great fencer, and I knew basically for like a couple of weeks leading up to it that it would either be him or um, this other very good fencer from the Netherlands. Um, they do it on a coin flip, so basically, like you can narrow your bow down to two people. So watched a lot of video, did a lot of prep for it, but yeah, when the when push came to shove, he got the better of me. Close, like what was? I'm sure you remember the score. It, so yeah, it was it was fifteen. 10 or 15 11 so remember those three tiers i was exactly. talking about so it was like okay like you lost but you fenced fine gotcha. and <laughs> but like you lost definitively you lost. is it have you gotten to the point because you've been very successful where like you genuinely and if this is an asshole question i apologize but like genuinely believe like i should win every match or like is the mentality like it could go either way not nah, the first one yeah <laughs> You have to, or you'll definitely lose. Gotcha. And the, here's the crazy thing about the Olympics, which it was really tough to deal with like afterwards, right? I, for basically a year and a half, because of COVID, right, we had a lot of extra time, visualized myself winning or meddling at the Olympics every day for like 400 days. So when I showed up to fence that, that round with Park, like, I knew I was going to win before we even stepped on the strip. Like I had fully convinced myself because I saw it in my head so many times. I was so ready for that moment. I felt so good. All the prep had been done. Like I was, there were no excuses. Like it was all ready. And I, I just knew that it was going to happen and then it didn't. And that was so hard to reconcile. And you just turned to a, terrible downward spiral of alcoholism and drugs or <laughs> you just talked to a <laughs> no, friend not your exactly. mom. i mean we had the team competition like a few days later um <laughs> so it had to bounce back right away but man it's tough i you probably heard in interviews right like super high level athletes like they just won won a big tournament They're like yeah i visualized this moment like last night i saw myself on top of the podium and here i am but what you don't think about is that second place through the end like they did the same thing <laughs> right they visualized it too. Like they knew they would be there and then it didn't happen on that day. But yeah, I mean, come on at the end of the day, like the Olympics is just another fencing tournament, right? Um, been to so many of them. 
and I feel I feel good about my career. You know, I, I accomplished a lot, and yeah, I didn't I didn't medal at the Olympics, but just getting there was a big accomplishment for me. Gotcha. And are you're not like done with fencing or anything, right? Or are you? I I actually haven't fenced since the Olympics. Oh, seriously? Why is that? Yeah, I'm I'm taking a step back. Yeah. Any particular reason, like Bitcoin millionaire type stuff? I wish. <laughs> I wish um, that the Olympics was just an exhausting, not, not only an exhausting experience, but getting there was, was very difficult. Um, and I'm actually, I'm not really sure where I'm going with fencing at the moment, but I, I needed some time. And most, a lot of Olympians take, take a lot of time off. Some, some do, some don't. Um, but I felt like I really needed a break. And if I ever am going to come back, give it another shot, like, I need to be fully reset. I didn't have enough gas in the tank. I, I gave it everything I had for 2020. That's why I told you, like, I walked in feeling like it was going to happen because I gave it everything. So if you really gave something everything, like, the next week, you, you're you not starting again. You got to fill, you got to get some more gas. Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm refilling the tank. Got you. I can't believe there was a, another tournament that quickly after the Olympics. Were they just trying to, like, yeah, make just, up from lost COVID time? Or is that common? No, no, no. Sorry, the, it was still the Olympics. At the Olympics, you have individual event and a team event. So we fenced individual event. Um, and then a few days later, we had the team event. And then there was a really big break. I don't think the next tournament, especially because of COVID, was until like November. Gotcha. Yeah. Dude, that's a tough play. God, that's a good... I didn't even think about the team concept versus individual. So those are yeah, two... Yeah, team's like a relay. Those are two completely separate tournaments. So like I've in like separate wrestling. Yeah. See when kids in wrestling, like the state tournament is one as individuals when you accumulate team points. Yeah, no, it's individual tournament where basically like I am just Jake Hoyle. And if my teammate loses and I win, then I just move on without them. If I, I lose and they win, then they just go on and I'm out. Um, and you're just fencing like with your own name on your back. But then for the team event, it's more like a relay. So all three of us fence all three of their guys um, one time to five and you go to 45 touches and just first of 45 wins or whoever's ahead when the time goes out, kind of the same scoring. Um, so think of it as like track and field. You do you do 100 meters like by yourself mm -hmm. and then you also do the, the relay. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you prefer one format over the other? I love the team event. Um I really, I really like fencing team. I always wanted to do a team sport, right? And fencing, you don't really get that because you're in, um, in that individual mindset. And most of the time, like you don't have a team event until you get to, to college basically. But I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I like being, being part of the team, like all competing together. It's a lot of fun. Dude, that... I feel like teams should go first. <laughs> I feel like the, it, like so many people are, you're going to be so freaking bummed to then like mentally rev up to like, or is it like the redemption and you get the channel? You're that's what it felt like. It was like the redemption. Like, all right, it didn't have an individual, like let's go get it in team. And we didn't get it in team either, but we, you bounce back pretty quickly Gosh. to be a like good fence. You got to have short-term memory loss. Like, all right, I lost. I mean, I watched, I rewatched about like that night okay, like here's some mistakes I made, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, this is what I would need to work on. This I did well, this I didn't. Okay, lesson learned, like moving on. Gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, the, the resiliency. Um, I don't know. It, it's one of those weird, 
skills. Do you attribute it to you being a Philly ish guy or do you attribute it to meditation or like, is it family where you can get over kind stuff? Kind of, I don't know. I feel like being from Philly, we're just like, it's an entire city of like underdogs. Even if you're ranked number one, like even when I was ranked number one, I still felt like an underdog. I don't know why. Maybe it is being from Philly, but I always thought that helped. Makes sense. Something also too, just about like really terrible winners. Like you got to suck it up <laughs> and just like, it doesn't matter, man. It sucks that the road suck. It sucks that the weather sucks. It sucks that things are unpredictable. Like, sorry, you got to roll. Yeah. I, um, what, what, I don't even know how like the COVID versus Olympics, but was it completely terrible? Did you actually get to enjoy the Olympic experience or was it so locked down that it was like, fuck man, I can't wait to leave type vibe. I, it, we wanted to stay, but we couldn't because with COVID we had to leave basically right away. Um, so we came in, went through all the COVID protocol at the airport, testing, et cetera, made it to the village, couple days, like maybe six, seven days of training, adjusting to the time difference. But before you compete, like all you're thinking about is competing. So we're going to practice, like getting good rest, just making sure we're eating right and then compete. Okay. Doesn't work out. A couple more days, more film, like get ready for the team event. And then we had two days after the team event was over where like finally the pressure was off. And then we chilled a little bit, like we met a lot of people and it, it was a great experience and opening ceremonies is something I'll remember forever. Um, but probably the like the coolest part of the Olympics experience was just a few weeks ago. We went to Washington, D.C. to the White House and Biden, um, First Lady, Kamala was there, Doug, and they, they all gave a speech. And that was like, that was really the unforgettable moment for me. Military band was on the lawn, like playing the Olympic fanfare. Everybody was happy. Pressure's off. Like olympians just kind of celebrating that was really cool dude that yeah did you um it was epic man yeah yeah it what, was great what kind of fighting game no i was just wondering like what kind of access do you get being the olympian aside from like the people who just get the free tour yeah we just we went in like there were a few um kind of like tour guides in there but we were just walking around like taking photos um and then they set up kind of grandstands on the south lawn and the president gave a big address and then everyone was just milling around afterwards. <laughs> yeah. It was really something else to like be standing, you know, 15 feet from the president and hearing him say like, you know, thank you so much for what you've done. Like I have so much respect for you. You know, it was just, it was wild. I'm like standing there like, what the, holy shit. The president's like <laughs> really praising us right now. It was cool. I, it was one of the more, and I, you don't have to get into like, politics or anything like that but it was one of the more things that kind of sucked where it seemed like when trump got elected it like turned into this like do we go do we not go to the white house and i bet you so many people like that just seems like a thing you're a sports person when you're successful you go to the white house and you represent the country it's like you win a championship you go to the white house and that's just like part of the perks and then all of a sudden it turned into this like well, if you go to the White House, you're – and, like, that had to suck. Yeah, that did happen. I'm sure there were – yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of people who, like, wanted to go but felt like they, they couldn't and vice versa. And all I'll say is just thankfully when I got invited, 
Biden was the president, no problems. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, to the White House, no big deal. Dude, it's kind of nice that like it's back to being like, oh my God, you're not like pro this, you're anti that if you go to the White House. Like, no, nah, man, you're just American. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we're just going to yeah. celebrate you. It's nice that yeah, we're back there. Yeah, exactly. That was great. Very cool. Very cool. Did um Secret Service mess with you at all? Or were you brave enough to like test boundaries when you got in there? No, no, we weren't testing boundaries. Um, <laughs> but there really were no boundaries. Like we could kind of like walk wherever. Um, but the Secret Service was everywhere, obviously. Yeah. I went, Um, I rode my bike to Biden's beach house. So Biden has a beach house down here in Rehoboth. Oh, nice. And um, the Secret Service guy just hangs out in like a Jeep Compass in the driveway when he's not around. And I yeah. I parked in front with the intention of just making him come out to ask me what I was doing <laughs> and then give him like information about me. So in like 10 years, I'm going to file like a Freedom of Information Act and see if I'm in some log on the date. Wow. Like I, it was that much of a plan and stupidity that I went through. My, I think my daughter had a field hockey camp that day. And I was like, what am I going to do for two hours? I was like, I'm going to ride my bike to Biden's house and see what's up. In 10 years, let me know if, if you're in that log. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have an alarm set on my phone, matter of fact. No, no. That'd be a little too much. Um, What uh, did representing the country, like was USA Pride a big deal for you or was it more like the elite competition? Was it more of anything or are, is it like super patriotic? Are you that much of a natural? I love the fact that I get to represent USA. I do love the fact that I get to represent USA and I was feeling mighty patriotic at the white house. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but for it felt more like a personal journey, honestly, overall, just trying to make the Olympics really for myself. But maybe what I'll say to that is some people, it's a lot easier to qualify for the Olympics for other countries. The U.S. fencing team is very difficult to make, but some people like get a dual citizenship and whatever, and then qualify for the Olympics that way. But I would never have represented a different country at the Olympics. Gotcha. Help me understand and people, I guess, how... Even if it meant that I couldn't go to the Olympics. Do you, you know have... what I mean? Do you have like opportunity for a dual citizenship? Someone in your family? No, but like people just find like little loopholes and they, they can, you know, oh, my, my dad's like grandmother was from here, like message the Olympic Federation there. Hey, you want me to fence for you? Oh yeah, sure. Like no problem. We would love to have you because maybe you'll make the Olympic team. Um, so you, a lot of times like you're not really truly from these places, but people jump around yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I remember there was talk like Kyrie Irving was going to play for Australia because I think he was born there when his father um, mm. was like a professional. And then um, I think uh, Ben Simmons too. It was one of those things. And it's like, would you really enjoy the Olympics if you live in America, your whole life's America and you're representing Australia? Like it seemed like it would be a weird contradiction. Yeah. Why is it so difficult in America? Help me understand. Um, is it just... Competitiveness, like yeah, the it's very competitive, super competitive. But because why? more more people do it in the U.S. than in some other countries, so U.S. team is less competitive than the French team, for example, right? Um, or the Japanese team. But a lot of countries don't even have teams, so you can just basically like sign up, join the federation, fence individually, go to a like um, zonal qualifier, and maybe make the make the Olympics. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask actually about Colombia because 
that's kind of impressive. And I wonder, not to rank them, but like getting into an Ivy League school versus qualifying for the Olympics, for some reason, I want to say like getting into an Ivy League school would be more difficult. No. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. No? Was like, were you always that much of a student where it was going to be like a given that you're getting into an Ivy League school? Because that's pretty elite too. No, not a, not a given. I definitely worked very hard in school and I had, I had very good grades in high school. Um, but basically I went to Columbia, um, trying to get recruited there and the head coach, Michael Offertig, I went into his office. He's like, yo, you know, I wish we had a spot for you, but we don't. So you just have to like apply early decision. Um, and I had gone through the process with him and the interim head coach at the time, Daria Schneider, And I just applied early decision. They put a letter of recommendation in for me, but it was not like a formal recruiting spot. And I got in. I think I got pretty lucky, honestly. Mike, like it was his first year as head coach. So I think, you know, admissions knew he was trying to build a team and maybe gave him like a a little edge. Um, But I I definitely had good grades. Like I deserve to be there, I would say, but I was definitely not a shoe in Yeah, because... Did you go to a public high school as well, or was that a... Yeah, Strat- Strathaven High School, um, outside of Philly, public school. Gosh, yeah. Because that's what I'm wondering, like, how common Ivy League acceptance is from public high schools. We had a handful of kids go to UPenn. Or, I mean, we had a very good public school system um, where I grew up. So we had a bunch of kids go to UPenn. One um, girl named Lexi Mazur also got recruited to play lacrosse at Columbia. So we were the two that went to Columbia. Um I think we had a someone go to Cornell. Yeah, we had, we had a few Ivies. Yeah, we had, we had a very good school. Yeah, that's it was a very very good public school. That's legit, man. Are you a pretty big deal back in your high school, or are you just so common now because you have so many successful people that you don't get like your face on the gym wall or anything like that? I I did go back um, this summer after the games to speak at uh, commencement to the to the teachers. So they, they had like a big commencement um, gathering, I guess, or um, yeah, gathering like before the school year started. So I went back and like gave a speech to them um, and I'll get recognized sometimes just like around the neighborhood. I was home by my parents are still in the area. So I go back a lot. I was like running on the track up at the high school and this kid is like, oh, hey, Jake, like congrats on being in the Olympics, man. <laughs> oh, OK, thanks. <laughs> like I picked out. Uh, we did like a Thanksgiving turkey trot and there were a few kids there who were in the fencing program at the school now and they knew me. Uh, I wouldn't say a big deal, but there, there's pockets. <laughs> there's there's a small yeah. following of fans. <laughs> I think really what did it, man, is some like big Philly Twitter account posted a funny like photo of me at the Olympics. I had this like handlebar mustache, like long hair look going. Yeah. And you see me now, like the hair is, the hair is short, but... <laughs> I was I was looking wild for the games and this like Twitter account put out this like funny photo saying like oh of course like you know the one like representative we have from the like Delco area at the Olympics like looks like this <laughs> and I think that circulated like in the in the high school a little bit Yeah I wanted to ask you about the handlebar thing like the inspiration behind that Bro in covid I just I grew my hair out we were like stuck inside Right so my roommate, uh, Jeff, and I just grew our hair out super long. Like, I had never had a beard before. So I figured, all right, let me try it out now. Grew it out. And then just, I like having a mustache. It was funny to me. 
<laughs> I mean, does anyone who has a mustache in this era actually not do it to be funny? Like, does anyone actually like it's like a sincere, sexy, or something like that? Maybe I don't know, but I feel like everybody thinks it's funny. Yeah. Like when I'm walking by another young guy who has a mustache too, like we both kind of give each other a look like, ah, okay. Yeah, you're that guy, right? Like you're yeah. cool to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. That's what I didn't realize. So I had seen your picture with the Olympic thing. Actually at the White House, um, just from seeing on the Instagram, you still had like the hair and the handlebars. Bait. Well, I guess Yeah, I more. just got a haircut like last week. Yeah. But looking at you in Cornell, like, dude, you were clean cut, yuppie looking. Yeah. Like it was like – yeah, it was a big diff. It was Ivy uh, League. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just tried it out. I think part of it too, like everybody kept telling me to cut my hair and shave my mustache. So obviously that made me just not want to do it even more. So it stuck around for a while. Gotcha. Were there any like pressure Olympic wise? Was do they have like a stylist that went around and gave athletes or like even oh, no, suggestions? No, no. You just show up. You just... <laughs> seriously? Yeah. Yeah. One guy on the team, Ray, showed up with a mullet. I like had this wild mustache like that. There's, there's no, they just let you do your thing, man. You're there to perform, not to look any sort of way. Gotcha. That's good to know. Yeah. What about, um, the opening ceremonies? Well, and cause you had mentioned about the clothing. I'm wondering like that, that gets built up here. Like the whole, Hey, this is what the athletes are going to wear. Ralph Lauren. Was it like yeah. a super tailoring thing? Was it like a factory line? Do you just submit your own sizes and then hope that they get it right? Because it has so to be cool. logistically. Like you, you, well, you submit your sizes, but then you have like a fitting basically where if stuff doesn't fit, you can exchange it. You know, shoes are a little too small. Okay, swap them out. And then for the opening ceremony outfit, you you go and get measured um, and then they, they trim up your jacket for you right there like in the village. Yeah. And feeling official, did you tear up at any moment of the process? I didn't tear up at the opening ceremony, no. But I it was a pretty emotional night. It was just, it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was really cool. Like every, all, like all of Team USA was there. We all go walking in together and it was, it was, it was really, really cool. What's the, like, are there typical conversations? <laughs> like Dude, it was just, just, it was really hot. We were like in this tunnel waiting to go out and just sweating like crazy. It was so hot. So we were just like, <laughs> you know, we're dying in here. People are like taking off their, their scarf and like, Jackets are off, just waiting to go out and just quickly like threw it back on before we actually like marched out into the stadium. Gotcha. Yeah. I FaceTime my girlfriend, my mom, like, yeah, we're here. We're about to walk into the opening ceremony. They're like watching it on TV back at home. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So did you just like there wasn't a restriction on you being able to post certain things? Uh there there are actually restrictions on posting um posting like media to your social accounts. But yeah, if you like want to FaceTime or send a photo like via text, that's not a big deal. That was fine. Okay, yeah. good to know. But for me, like the opening ceremony felt like the moment where the Olympics would become real. Because I was training for five years, right? I want to make the team. Okay, I'm getting closer and closer. Okay, I'm an inch away from qualifying. Okay, I officially qualified. But if you get COVID, you can't go. Okay, got to be super strict with COVID. Make sure I don't test positive. Okay, finally, I didn't test positive. I'm in the village. All right. But like, I felt like once I stepped foot into the stadium at the at the opening ceremony, that that was like when it would become real, and that's exactly how it felt. Yeah, because then you couldn't like there was basically no. Well, I guess there's always a chance with COVID to lose it, but at that point, everybody's cleared so many hurdles. You just get to feel like that little pocket, like you're in a bubble. Yeah. Gotcha. 
Yeah, dude, that's something I didn't have to go through. What was your, did you literally like legitimately sit by yourself for two weeks preparing before you left to stay COVID free? I was free? so uptight, man. So uptight not to get COVID. I had my vaccines and everything, but yeah, if you got unlucky, I live in New York City. I'm taking the subway to practice. Like if you get unlucky, you get COVID, you're done. You test positive at Narita, like I don't know if I would have competed. Some of our guys like were isolated for basically the whole time we were there just because they were near somebody who tests positive. So I was very, very careful. I didn't do shit. I just stayed at home. Like I only left. If I left the house, it was to train. I was just being extra, extra careful. And there was only so much you can do, but I did everything I could. And yeah, I didn't get it before the games. Dude, that's something looking back now, that close contact. Like the, I, I've, I've almost yeah. forgot about like you'd get locked up if you were just next to somebody who had COVID yeah. for so long. Even if you tested negative, you still had to wait. A few members of the delegation just sitting like close on the plane to somebody who tested positive and then they got stuck in isolation the whole time. God. Yeah. Yeah. And it was worth it. It's huh? crazy. All, all the Yo, isolation, it was all, all the stress. It was all worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it would be four years and said it was five. We had all the COVID protocols, but it was definitely worth it. This was my dream, man, since I was like 12 years old. Being an Olympic fencer? Yeah. That's when I started fencing. Yeah, but like... And that that's all it is about fencing. Like, when you think fencing, you think Olympics. Like you said earlier, right? There's nowhere yeah. else. That's the pinnacle. That's... Especially like, yeah, you're 13 years old. You tell somebody like, oh, I'm fencing. They're like, oh, are you going to go to the Olympics? Like, that's where everyone's mind goes. Uh... <laughs> and then the next question is like, give me your lunch money. And they try to beat you up. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> um, dude. Yeah. Do people, have you gotten like, you go to a bar or something, somebody knows you're a fencer and then they like want to like drunk challenge you to some sort of stupid thing with butter knives or anything like that. Does that ever happen? <laughs> not quite, not quite, not quite that far. But a question that I'm sure like all fencers get a lot is like, Oh, you're a fencer, huh? If we did like a real sword fight, like, do you think you would win? That's like the most common. Never like a straight challenge to butter knife fight, but yeah, everybody wants to know like if it's Game of Thrones style, like, would it help or not? Oh yeah, I forgot. What was that? Was um the one who trained? Uh, God, the daughter. What was so it was like early on. Um, anyway, they had a fencer, and then the mountain comes, and he's like teaching her how to fight with wood swords, and then he tries to take on like knights with wood swords, and. Mm. he dies doesn't work out well <laughs> he was supposed to live. yeah you don't wood sword yeah it probably yeah, did that's, that's a question that you get a lot have you gotten used to people like me and like the whole hey man can we get some of your time hear about your experience stuff or is that still weird for you that people randomly want to like talk to you yeah i don't think i got used to it <laughs> i think it's i think it's great and i'm pretty receptive to stuff like that so I get a lot of young fencers messaging me. It's mostly through Instagram nowadays, right? And a lot of people messaging me just, oh, you know, what do you think about this? Oh, like, you know, I'm doing this in my club. Like, what do you think? Or just, oh, you know, I just wanted to tell you that, you know, I'm a big fan, stuff like that. And that that's just like, it's great. It always feels good. And um, I'm always like just responsive when, when there's kids reaching out that way. I'm supposed to go this summer out to some club, like, in, in Pennsylvania somewhere to fence with a kid who like just hit me up on Instagram. Do you feel so I, it yeah. doesn't come so often that like 
I have to say no. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's pretty sparing. Like, I'm not a big deal. So, like, a couple messages here and there, like, yeah, I'm happy to respond, like, have a conversation, get on the phone, whatever. Gotcha. Is it, um, do you feel like a little bit of a responsibility to use momentum to, like, keep fencing going or to, like, try to grow the sport? Or you're just, like, a nice guy and, like, hey, man, you're into it. I'll help you out. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely am going to gonna be involved. I'm, I'm involved in a, in a variety of different things in the sport now to help, you know, make some positive changes and keep it, keep it moving forward within the United States, you know, fencing association and, um, my, my clubs. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel that responsibility. Um, positive changes. Is there something like that you're hoping gets done more, like more schools adopting it or access, or am I just overthinking that word use? No, really the way that I'm involved is, Basically, I, I serve as an athlete representative for Men's Epe just to make sure that, you know, an ath- the athlete's mindset and the athlete's like opinion and point of view is at the table when certain things are being decided. So, oh, we're, we're going to like only count five tournaments this year instead of six. Like it, it's important to have an athlete there instead of just, you know, an organizer to say, you know, that's actually really good for athletes or really bad for athletes. And this is, you know, why you should consider doing or not doing that. And that's kind of what my role has been for a little while. Okay. Yeah, as as an adult, I always just being in schools and being around decision makers, I get very surprised when people make decisions without like boots on the ground experience. They just make yeah, like theoretical exactly. decisions. And you're like, Yeah, how does that make sense in any sense of the term that you're like completely yeah. disconnected? You don't have some sort of Oh, I've been through this. Hey, this is what's happening, advisor. You're like, nah, you know what? I've been crunching some numbers and blank. And you're like, dude, yeah. decisions should not be made like that. So that's cool that that kind of stuff's happening. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, so, like for example, there's one of the, one of the changes that me and a few athletes are trying to get done now is to allow the national coach the ability to make a petition to substitute one of the fencers at the Olympics, um, the, the alternate position. So I think that the, that could do a lot of good things for performance basically at the Olympics in, in future years and a few other athletes agree. And so we're trying to, trying to get that done. Obviously there's another side, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but those are the kind of things I'm working on. Why? Um, yeah. So there's three that actually fence. Why does that matter that the coach, so like is the alternate, like the fourth highest, ranked person but then you would hope like the coach would be able to substitute them to spar practice or a style thing like why does that matter yeah like it could be a style thing exactly like let's say you have four really tall right-handed like pistol grip fencers on a team and the coach you know and the team feel like you you actually need a short like lefty guy to mix it up um Uh, then you can make a substitution like that or like there's a there's a guy who was injured or coming back and didn't quite make the team, let's say they finished fifth, but you know, they've been to like three Olympics before, then that's somebody that you want to make a discretionary call to put on the team. Um, so things like that, it's pretty rigid the way it is now. And personally, I just think that a little more flexibility could be beneficial for performance at the games. And we'll see what, we'll see what happens. It's not my decision. I just, you know, no, like I opinion at the table. Yeah, well, theory, and I believe that's like how the USA does the Ryder Cup where like certain golfers qualify and then the captains of the golf team get to like have the captain's choice for two. And I don't know what goes exactly. into picking them, but you for 
fencing, I'm thinking of training. And if I'd imagine you look at a bracket and it would whatever styles make fights. So if you know you have shorter left-handed people and your team's full of right-handed tall people, it would just make sense that, hey man, maybe for the team, we want to be able to like train yeah, especially against. Especially if you know, like first round, you got a team with like, you know, a couple guys who you did the scouting report and they're not, they're not good against lefties or they struggle. Like it could be a, a tactical decision you want to make or yeah, just, just more flexibility. And I think it could be better. Are, are the styles that different within? They're, they're pretty fencers? different. Yeah. They're very different. What's the so you got like... righties, lefties, obviously, and you have pistol grip, which looks like kind of like a gun kind of that you're like holding in your hand um, to hold it like this. Or you have a French grip, which is basically just a like a tennis racket grip. Um, so different different handedness and different um, grip type. Like you use different moves basically and you have like a different strategy. So th those are like the first questions that you want to know. If I say, all right, Sean, like you're fencing this guy from Italy, you would say, all right, is he righty or lefty? Like does he fence French or pistol? Those are the first like two things you want to know. Gotcha. Who's his coach? Like, you know, what country he's from and if he's lefty or righty, French or pistol. Because the coaches have particular styles and then you immediately start thinking of how to counter what their typical training would be like. Yeah, exactly. Like if you draw me at a, at a um, tournament in the U S and someone says, Oh, he takes on Sir Like you instantly have a good idea of like how, what I fence like. Okay. Who messes with you? Like who do you have the most difficulty in fencing? It's funny that you asked that. I got, I got the answer ready. Oh, so really? <laughs> one of the guys who made the Olympic team, with me, his name is Yasser Ramirez. Great guy, love him. I just have such a hard time fencing him. <laughs> I, yeah, I just, I could never beat him. I drew him in tournaments many times and never beat him. For, you... for many years, I had never even beat him in practice. <laughs> for years living in New York, I had never beaten him in practice. Eventually, I cracked him, but it took a long time, man. There was a tournament once I drew him. He beat me 15-3, okay? And this was back, we had a double elimination, actually. So he knocked me out of the main bracket, 15-3. I scored three touches on this guy. He drops me down. I fight my way back out of the, like, bottom half bracket. I make it back into the regular pool of eight. And I drew him again, and he beat me 15-2. <laughs> Is he toying with you and, like, talking shit through the mask? Because you don't get to, like, see the lips. So I can't imagine, like, is there a ton of shit talk? Because... Not a ton, but he's yelling, like he's celebrating. He knows that, like I'm frustrated, and yeah, he makes making me pay. Gotcha. What was it about him? <laughs> Beats me, man. If I knew, then I could have figured <laughs> it out, and I could have won some bouts. That's a good, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. He's just a great fencer, and yeah, we we don't match up. Like he can just he picks me up, knows what I'm doing. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I guess that's what I'm thinking is like, is it more his defense or is it more? you can't stop him or you can't score on him or is it just fucking everything? Can't stop him. Can't score on him. I can't, can't, can't do anything against this guy. <laughs> He's like my kryptonite, bro. <laughs> I can't fence Yeser. Yeser, if you're listening, man, I love you. Did, um, did he make the Olympic team? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no it was way. me, Yeser and, and Curtis McDowell, another, another New York fencer. Okay. Dude, that's great. So like that group, did you know the, like, was the group of Olympians, y'all had knew each other before the Olympic training? Like, do you guys know each other? US oh, yeah, National? we knew each other for years and years and years. Fencing, very small community, especially, like, among the high-level epi fencers. There's maybe only, you know, 15, 
15 of them total. And you travel to a lot of the same tournaments. You fence against each other for years. So, like, I had fenced Yaser. This tournament I'm telling you about was probably back in, like, 2015. And I had fenced Curtis in a junior event, like, oh, back in, before before college, like, back in 2010. So we've been around, like, always seeing each other and fencing against each other, fencing with each other at, on the national team, various tournaments leading up to the Olympics. So, yeah, we, we knew each other very well before we actually showed up to the Games. Is it hard to be... And Curtis and Yaser from the same club. So uh... they've been training and... Yeah, been together for a long time. Is it hard to be friends when you're competing? Because it's like you have this tournament, like team issue, but then you have this like individual thing. And in my it head, can be. yeah, I would, I don't know. It can be. I think for the most part, guys do a good job of being professional, leaving the leaving the fencing on the strip. Like it's it's hard to learn when you're a kid if you're fencing like with a friend. It's tough to step on the strip and you know, want to rip their head off and just put them down. But you learn quickly how to, you know, just be all business on the strip. And then as soon as you step off, you shake hands and it's all good. Yeah. I'm, I guess just thinking, I'm thinking of like AAU tournaments where if you're away for the weekend, you're just hanging out, right? Like that's what you do. You compete for a little bit and then you hang out overnight and then you continue to compete the next day. But with like fencing, if you're on this team thing, you would have to, have your individual competition and then still try to, I don't know, like have camaraderie, be friends, help yeah. each other. Oh, yeah. to get you travel better. together. You're staying in the same hotel, yeah. riding the bus, like you're training together. You might have a camp beforehand. You might stay a few days after the tournament just to see the city. Like, yeah, you get to know everybody very well. And you're like, want to help them get better. But at the same time, like, do you want to help them get better? Because I want to beat <laughs> you. Right. Like, I guess that's what I'm thinking in my head, trying to, debate how would i be if i'm in that situation yeah everyone's different for me i just <laughs> tried not really to like stress about that part of it too much so yeah okay i might give away something about myself that might help you know adam score one more touch on me at a tournament like six months from now maybe but mentally like i'll do a lot better for myself just not stressing about it just being myself like um, yeah, not, not being overly guarded, being open, like willing to talk, share ideas. And that, that worked well for me. Gotcha. What, what do you do like non-fencing wise, not to paint you as just a fencer? I don't know yeah. anything else aside from your just propensity to grow great handlebar mustaches. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, uh, I work in finance. I'm at a small fund and Columbia. I, and I run a lot these days. So my, my cousin has shen muscular dystrophy and i'm involved with the muscular dystrophy association um organizing charity runs and basically we we like coordinating for the new york city marathon this year and last year um so raising money for them um running a lot i have a little dog a little mini schnauzer named achilles that i got right when i got home from the game so been in the dog dad life for the last six months training up a puppy it's uh not easy for sure a lot of sleepless nights and frustrating uh frustrating days but yeah he's uh he's a good dog um yeah i live up in i live in new york city with my with my girlfriend and my brother um pretty pretty family oriented so i'm down like i'll never miss a birthday or a or a holiday back in philly spent a lot of time with the fam uh, can we go back to choosing achilles is that a shout yeah. out to troy and brad pitt with his um six pack or some other reason exactly yeah yeah stop that was you not should... it 
Yeah, that's Achilles, like the Greek hero. <laughs> I, so here's a story. I wanted a giant schnauzer, which is like a hundred pound, just behemoth of a dog. Perfect for right? New York City. Perfect for New York City, yeah. exactly. How many? But bedrooms? that's a perfect dog for at a name like Achilles, right? That's a tough name. Yeah. Um, but it's impractical. Didn't want to do it. I uh, couldn't keep a dog like that in the apartment. So I gave up on the giant and got a mini, but I didn't give up on the name. So I got a mini schnauzer. He's 16 pounds named Achilles. <laughs> giant personality. Yeah, giant personality. Yeah. He's a lover, not a fighter, though. I, f- yeah, I feel like most dogs, with like compassionate people, I'm amazed just being around. So Rehoboth, Dewey, you said you've been to Rehoboth, but like Dewey Beach is an off, off-leash dog beach before like off season definitely and then when lifeguards are off duty so nine eight up until nine thirty, and then after five thirty, you can just walk for like three miles on the beach and you just have everyone with their dogs off the leash okay. it's, it's a really cool vibe and so you yeah. get to see all these different dogs and then you get to meet you know people who have these dogs and like you realize the whole like stereotypical angry dog it probably just comes from the people they're around man because most people that are chill and loving and enjoy life, their dogs are exactly that. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I never had a problem with them. Like, do you have a dog too? Yeah, I got a lab. So, I mean, labs, they get no okay, better cool. than... That's all they want to do is lay on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just, yeah, he's like a chill guy. I don't know. I think we just, when he was a puppy, we made sure to like bring him outside a lot, meet a lot of different people meet a lot of different dogs and yeah he's just a friendly little guy yeah dogs are the way to go um so are you complete like completely anti-cat do you have yeah i would say i'm fully anti-cat yeah i i don't understand why anyone i would never own a cat honestly would get a cat for a pet they just seem so ungrateful for everything and a hassle they're too they're too slick man they're too slick (laughs) achilles has no tricks you know he's just you know what you're getting. I love like coming home. I don't know about your lab, but when I come home, like he just goes nuts, freaking out, like just so happy. It's the highlight. Like it's just the best part of the day. Yes. You, can, you know, cat's not going to do that. No, the cat's going to like sit by the food bowl or like look at whatever <laughs> they knock down and be like, pick that up, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's what like, he just follows me, follows us around the apartment. You know, if, you know, you're in the other room and you close the door, like you open it and he's just sitting there like waiting for you. Yeah. Um, oh, he just loves us so much. He's yeah. It's the weirdest. I'm a, I'm a dog person for sure. It's the weirdest like evolutionary thing. Whoever was the original like biped that bonded with a quadped like and figured out and then all of a sudden they kept breeding them and they had their like herd of dogs and now we're at this place. Like, thank God for that person. Because it doesn't make sense. Like, why Why are they so attached? You know, why do they genuinely seek? I think about that all the time with them. It's like, you're an animal. Like, you're literally an animal. Yeah. And you're just sitting here in my apartment, like, with your head on my foot. Right. Like, what is going on? It's so weird. I mean, obviously, they've been domesticated, like, yeah. bred like that for generations. But still, uh, still pretty well. But it's a choice. Like, they genuinely make the choice. And they seem, you know, like, they read emotions they look to please, they're obedient, yeah. and it's like there's opportunities for you to get away. You could plot. Like I feel like people, if they were trapped in an apartment, the majority of them would attempt escapes and stuff. Yeah. But like it seems like dogs, they'll run away, whatever, they'll get like scatterminded and chase something. But 
they want to be around the people that raise them. It's so, so odd yeah, from totally. another species. Yeah. It's really, really strange, but love having a dog. Yeah. I, it, um, yeah, I don't get snake people. I don't get cat. I get kind of cat people cause kittens are really cute when they're young. So like I could get it yeah, and get true. stuck with a cat. But if you're not a dog person, like you're immediately suspect to me. <laughs> and like, I feel that. I feel that. You, you've got a couple more hurdles before I trust you. Um, I definitely wouldn't let you babysit my child. <laughs> yeah, if you're not a dog person. If you're not a dog on? person. Um, can I ask you about the running? Because we have a pretty big running culture down here. Are you a 5K oh, cool. runner? Are you like a marathon guy? Are you just a jog for fun? I never really ran, honestly, before the Olympics. I would run like sprints from now and then like i said on the track yeah. but never any distance stuff because i was scared like getting hurt um but my girlfriend lila was on the cross-country track and field team at columbia uh, so after i came back from the games like we would we would run a lot together and we did the new york city marathon last year um and we're doing it again in november this year yeah so i don't know typical run is probably like five miles for me okay maybe a little bit longer like once or you know once every two weeks do like a 10 spot or something like that and then, I mean, for the marathon, like I ran that thing pretty slow. So yeah, well, I got it done, but I wouldn't say I'm a marathoner. <laughs> what, um, what was your time for the marathon? Uh, I think it was like 3.36 or 3.37, maybe 3.38. Did that, that's like almost like an eight. Is that just over an eight minute mile It was pace? like, yeah, it was right around eight. Yeah, dude, that, I mean, to keep that shit up for 26 miles, that's... Well, I didn't keep it up for 26 miles. I came flying out the gate doing like six and change for the first like 10. And then I died. So like my last mile was like definitely 12 minutes. Like everybody was passing me at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you... That was tough. That was really hard. Yeah. So I did a country marathon out here just by myself. Um, and I was able to jog for 22 miles before I hit a wall. My issue was I didn't... I only, I bought off of Amazon a belt that had two 10 ounce bottles of water and that was yeah. it. And oh, that's it? That was it. And the fucked up thing was, you know how they have those like silicone bags in them that you're supposed to like take out? Yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't it, take them out. No. So I filled it with water and then I'm drinking the second one and I'm 22 miles. My speakers go. So now I'm just all in my head. I don't have yeah. like any music to distract me. And I run out of water and I put, I look at the bottle and I see the thing. And in my head, I'm like, my kidneys are going to freeze up. I just ingested <laughs> whatever this silicone stuff that's meant to dry. And like my yep. lips all of a sudden are more chapped. And I could, I had to go like oh, three no. quarters of a mile, quarter mile walk, three quarters of a mile, quarter mile walk. And I felt like yeah. such a failure, man. In no, my, you got it done, man. That's awesome. No, it's, you did it by yourself. Yeah, I don't know how you did that. Like at the New York City Marathon, there's people lining the streets. Like, it's pretty hype energy. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't have done it by myself. No way. You don't think? Like, just throw on. Like, I threw on a Joe Rogan podcast. I was, it's funny because I remember the podcast because I was so. It was so long. It was a dude in, from Texas who like hunts child traffickers, and it was like kind of depressing, but it made me angry, and it allowed yeah. me to like keep going. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't. You don't think you could just. You meditate. You've meditated for six hours. You can't jog by yourself <laughs> for three and a half. Maybe, maybe, but it's a lot harder by yourself. That's for sure. Okay. All right. Maybe I'll feel a little better about myself then. No, you should. 22 miles. Like that's where basically I feel like everybody hits the wall. That's where I hit the wall. 
Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. 22, I was like, all right, why am I doing this? I stopped to use a bathroom at like 21, and I was like, oh, my God, I got to keep running because it hurts more to stop. Dude, the feeling <laughs> afterwards. It up. Yeah, it's very, like, it's legit lockup. I was amazed at yeah. how my legs felt. It was the weirdest feeling. Almost like I, I, I've never had a stroke, but I didn't know what my legs would do when I stopped. It was wild. Yeah, it was wild. And now I feel like doing the marathon this year again, knowing what I'm getting into is going to make it a lot harder. Because I had never run a marathon before and I just came from the Olympics. So I'm like, all right, I went to the Olympics. Like I can run this marathon, no problem. So I just like blind faith, just like went into it. No but shit. now I actually understand like how much it hurts and how much it takes. So it's like, it's going to be much harder the second time. You you didn't have like, did, you had to do some sort of training. Oh yeah, we, we were training. We were running a lot. Okay. I only did 20, probably like 20 miles was the longest that we did before actually running the race. Gotcha. Yeah, I think mine was maybe... I think I peaked at 18 and um, I forget why, but I like I hit nine miles and I was like, fuck man, I got nine miles to go back home. I'm kind of bored. And I was like, ah, I can do 26. Like I was almost like disrespectful to the marathon, <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. And I think that's what yeah. got me was I didn't approach no. it like the marathon distance itself was an accomplishment. I looked down upon gotcha. it like ah, I could get it and it got me. <laughs> Yeah, dude, that's uh, into finance. I don't, I don't want to ask you too much about finance or, or get free financial advice because my day trading is uh, shit. But do you, is it a career you enjoy or are you just like good with numbers guy and you got into I actually it? do. I do like my job um, and I like the people that I work with a lot and a good team. Um, so yeah, I, I do like it actually. And I don't do what you would think of as like 100 hour a week, like investment banking, terrible, like, just brutal hours, like really tough job. That that's not what we do. Okay. So it's a little bit better. Our company's like based out of Puerto Rico. I'm flying down there this weekend. Work from the office, like chill on the beach. We have a pretty relaxed culture. I work remotely. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good spot for me. Based in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Like, how'd you get? Um, is this a job application thing, or are these just people that you wound up networking with to get a job? Like, yeah. That? So I, I network with these guys back um, when I had graduated college, a friend of mine was working with them and he put us in touch. Um, he was a classmate from Columbia and I had the ability basically to work there and train because I could work remotely, make my own schedule, work part-time. Um, and it was actually an interesting, an interesting job. And so that, that's what I did basically while I was fencing to, uh, to keep the lights on, the lights on in my apartment and the lights on the machine on the, on the fencing strip. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I don't know how, without like remote work or internet, like how an athlete would actually be able to maintain a job and train. Like I've had ultra runners on who have like part-time jobs at shoe stores so they can get discount clothing so that they could train in them in order to get sponsored to be an ultra runner. It's like, but yeah, dude, your training alone takes like six, seven hours for you to get oh, the yeah. 40, 50 miles you need. It's it, it's like yeah, logistically impossible. It's it was really tough. I mean, like ultra runners, fencers, like we're not pro, right? We're not truly pro athletes. So there's always going to be that balance and it's yeah, it's tough to figure it out. I found a good little spot though where I could work remotely, do it from home. If I needed to travel for a tournament, no problem, just bring the laptop with me and 
that was great. And this is before COVID. Like now, I feel like there's probably tons of work from home opportunities out there. Yeah. Um, for athletes, like that's what you need. If you're an athlete, like trying to pursue something after college, you gotta just have fully remote, flexible work. That's the absolute key. That gave me such an edge. There was a training camp. Like I had never missed a training camp ever. I, I had no reason not to, right? I could go to everything. Oh, group of guys are fencing in the middle of the day. No problem. I'm going to be there, right? Like that was such a huge help to me. Yeah, that. I think that can be under, under understood and underappreciated when you watch people perform. Aside, like I think everyone gets the whole like, hey man, you trained for like four years for those nine minutes, or like the yeah. poor gymnasts, or like the one person who's doing like whatever, like the tumble routine, you get a minute and a half or like figure skaters. God love figure skaters, man, for a minute and a half, two minutes and the yeah. dedication, then it's gone, right? One slip up and it's gone. But the, you get that aspect, but I don't know if they get like the daily grind of survival and like, hey man, I want to go out and like, I don't know, upgrade my car. I want to buy a nice pair of shoes. I want to <laughs> have a nice couch. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but I can't because I can't work extra overtime because I'm an athlete. Got a fence. I mean, yeah. And this this honestly ties back to what we're talking about, and you know, me kind of taking a step back for a minute from fencing. But when you when you start off to make the team, like at least the way I did it, every single decision I made for five years straight is just has fencing in it. Exactly. Oh, you want the new couch? No. Gotta gotta save some money, like for fencing. Oh, you know, I need to get this work. I need to get this work done. Not because I need to get this work done for work, but I need to get this work done now so that I can go to fencing practice tonight. Right? <laughs> right? Like, oh, gotta stretch. Like, need to do it for fencing. Don't want to get hurt because of fencing. Oh, do you want to go on this like trip this weekend? No, can't do it because of fencing. Like every decision. Oh, I want a dog so badly. Like I would love to have a puppy. Can't get the dog. Can't give the time because of fencing. Right. So it's been amazingly refreshing for the last eight months to start making some decisions and doing some things just for me you, without fencing being involved. Yeah. That's a great point. Cause it's like a stamina to avoid the resentment. Yeah. And so that, that's exactly, it's tough. So like, yeah, I came back, I got my dog. I'm like, I went to the Olympics. <laughs> I'm getting the dog. <laughs> it was like the week I got back. I set it up, got it done. Yep. That's that was great. <laughs> That's, I'm, I don't, I don't know what I would think about coming home, but I did not think like, Hey, if I'm an Olympic athlete, my go-to when I come home is like, can't wait to get a puppy. That's just, oh, that's awesome. I wanted, I want a schnauzer specifically too, for the longest time. Um, and so, yeah, I was just really looking forward to that. It's just so much time, man. You got the lab when he was a puppy. Yeah. So it's kind of stupid. So my daughter was it was her last year before she went to um, elementary school. Kindergarten starts at five. And I was like, um, it's the perfect time for her to get a puppy because we got fenced in yard. We got like an acre, you know? So mm -hmm. the dog walking wasn't as big of a deal because you could just open the door and the dog could go out. Yeah, that's true. You know, if it's winter and you got to take a piss, like, cool, man, I don't have to wait outside with you for half <laughs> yeah. an hour. Like, that's a huge advantage. And that's yeah, half that's the awful. thing that makes you upset at a dog. Um, so got her and like nine months in, um, my daughter, I think I was like asleep on the couch. My daughter opens the back door cause the dog got trained. Like they would sit and they would, that was their like sign that they had to go use the restroom. They had to go out. Yep. So, you know, she's like 
four and some change, almost turning five, lets the dog out and the dog just, right? Somebody forgot to close the gate. Dog's gone. Oh no. Dude, fucking dog's gone for four months. Four months that dog is gone. And it's the country. One day we get a an anonymous letter in our mailbox. We think we know where your dog is. They leave the address. So it's four months later. Like we're talking like December, November-ish. I roll up to this trailer park. And like I grew up in a trailer park. No shade to trailer parks. But like it's a little trailer park. And you're like, this is where I'm going. Like am I getting set up somehow? <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm rolling in. I'm like, what's the deal? Knock on the door. And um, fucking dog, Wendy, all of a sudden's like, <laughs> going Just nuts right and there. shit. Oh and I'm God. like, this is fucking trippy. I go in there and I forget what they called the name. It was like Sasha or something. And the lady was so mean to me. And I'm really? like, I'm telling you, this is my dog. And she's like, this dog came from a puppy farm. It was neglected. It was malnourished. It wasn't taken care of. I'm like, dude, like this dog yeah, sleeps with my daughter, man. Like, yeah, right. Like it's been wandering <laughs> the woods. It ran away. I'm like, here's my cell phone. Look at this four-year-old girl with this puppy. Like, yeah. do you want me to show you the expensive flea and tick, man? Like I'm trying to validate and I'm feeling insulted at the same time. Cause I'm like, fuck story. you. I don't love this dog. I paid $900 for a purebred <laughs> lab. Like I drove three hours to get this thing on Memorial day weekend on a whim as a present. And now you're going to deny me my daughter i'm like do we need to call the cops like i'm getting heated at this like 60 year old retired lady who thought she was doing good anyway we like work it out and the moment which was hilarious was like and this dog is disrespectful it's not obedient it doesn't listen and like the dog wendy's like chewing on something and i remember the moment it's crazy i was like i snapped and i was like drop it and the dog just sits yeah. and drops it and you're like what were yep. what and she was like all right. I'm like, well, the pictures weren't enough. Like me yeah. commanding the dog is you're like, okay, now you'll give me my dog back. And it was That's one of the trippiest wild. moments, man. But it was, I don't know, like ever since then, like we go to the beach, she's off leash. She stays right with us. You know, like yeah. we go for field walks and she stays with us. We whistle and she comes running back. And it was almost like, yeah. again, on that level, she missed us and she couldn't figure out how to like she almost got trapped and she was like trying to get back to us because now she's beyond attached you know wow. i don't know how common that is but like that's she can a just crazy story and thank god you got her back dude just getting a fucking note in your mailbox after four months like four months you that have must no have been idea. the worst four months of your life dude, i don't know about your life but that must have been a tough four months dude well because like my the only thing i was grateful for is like my daughter was so young she didn't like have a ton of guilt because that was yeah. the worry like oh my god you lost your dog and like that would eat yeah. her up you know so it was a balance of like looking for the dog and trying to show a responsibility of like hey we need to go find wendy versus like do you want your almost five-year-old to be crying at night because she doesn't have the dog that she's been playing with for nine months right. you know like yeah. it was a weird psychological balance like do i care more about the dog or my daughter kind of a thing yeah. like hey wendy's just gone and we accept it but then like I'm grabbing my bike and going for like eight mile bike rides on these country roads, whistling, Just you know, every weekend, yeah. seeing what's up. You put up some posters here and there, but it's the country. So like who stops at a poster? You put up a sign yeah. in your yard, like lost dog. And that's what did it. It was like, we just left the sign up and the mail carrier had to be somebody was like, Hey, I think this is your dog. 
Yeah. That is nuts. Yeah. The thing that sucks is they wound up getting her um, spaded. So they um, got her fixed and she was a purebred. Oh, so while she, she was with you. Yeah, yeah while she was while with she them. Um, because oh. she came from a puppy factory and we didn't want her to be used and it's undignified for dogs just to be bred. And I'm like, fuck, man, like she's a legit, like she's a retriever. She just, you know, like grabs and brings it back naturally. It's the, that's the craziest fucking thing, dude. You throw a ball and like the dog just innately gets it and brings it back to you and just sits with it in your, in its mouth and will like drop it. Wow. And like, so you didn't have to train her to do that or anything nah. she just naturally does it yeah wow. well you gotta train her to like let go because at first they want to like tug a little bit or whatever um and i'm not super oh, dog yeah. trainer guy but you can say like release and they learn but they know dude they'll go get whatever and they just come right back to you with it like they're proud and wait for you that's for awesome it. it's it's in their genes it's insane wow yeah we, we taught him how to fetch but it, it took like some training to get him to do it to go get the object or to, to bring get it and bring it back. Yeah. Oh, okay. To both. Like he wouldn't chase it at first. Then he'd chase it. He wouldn't pick it up in his mouth. Then we got him to pick it up. That was the problem to like get him to bring it back. Then once he brings it back, he wants to play like keep away. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to like work on every stage though. Yeah, no doubt. And there's still puppies. But he has a lot too. of energy. So if you don't fetch with him, like he, he can't get enough exercise basically. And then he's like bouncing off the walls in here. Yeah. So the, the fetch was very important to teach him. Yeah, are you close enough to like Central Park? I know there was like that one weird video of a dude walking with his dog off the leash and like that Karen tried to bust him a couple of years ago. Do you remember that? And then she's like, no, he was the bird watcher. She was the Karen. Her dog was off the leash. And then she winds up like uh, choking her I dog don't, out. Oh, really? I don't know what you're talking about actually, oh, but dude, Central Central's like a mile and a half from us. Okay. So we take the dog there every once in a while, but we have a, we have a good dog park like just a couple blocks away. Gotcha. you. And so you go there, like let them off a leash. Um, although, dude, people walk around the streets in New York City with their dogs off a leash. Really? Yeah. There's a guy in my neighborhood whose dog is so well trained off leash that the dog just walks right beside him on the sidewalks of New York City, right? And whenever he goes to cross the street, the dog just sits and waits at the sidewalk crossing. And then he like walks across and he'll like check, see if there's any cars. And then he tells it to come and it goes running like across the street. And then they just walk down the sidewalk. Same thing at the next cross street. Yes, yeah. that's sick. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it doesn't. What, My dog would never do that, but he's got to train like crazy. Um, what kind of? Because I'm just like thinking about the fear. Or is New York just that busy where like people probably don't even notice? Nah, nobody really cares. I mean, <laughs> the dog's not bothering anybody. Like, what's the big deal if it's off the leash? God. Yeah. See the phobia around here. Like, you get some looks every once in a while on the beach, even though it's a dog beach. People. It's almost like when people are outside still wearing their COVID mask and it's like they just have that natural anxiety of being sick. Some people act like that with dogs and you're like, no, nah, man, if it's off leash, it's off leash for a reason. Like it's not going to do anything to you. Yeah, I guess some some people are just nervous. Like I could never let my dog off leash on the street. He loves to like jump up because he wants to play and like that wouldn't be good. Yeah, they but in the dog park, like that's fine. But on the street, like no way he would just see a bird, like he'd be gone. Yeah, right. Or just like go get pet by somebody. Or I don't yeah, know, exactly. Man. We uh, we've got some. This is so random. We've got some chickens down the road from us that people just let walk around their yard, and we're amazed that like the chickens have learned their boundaries naturally for the road, 
and they stay mm. in the grass. And like for some, wow. yeah. And it's been six months now and we, they still have all six chickens and we have yet to, we drive the road every day. And like every day I'm like, I'm going to see a dead chicken on this road because why does the chicken cross the road? Like clearly they're not that smart type shit. And <laughs> even a fucking they just bird. Know not to go across. Yeah. Wow. The, they, they've like adapted. They've learned, they hear the cars, they like respect it. They learned their boundaries. And it's like, Maybe we underestimate your intelligence, little animals. We must. <laughs> but then That's at the same time, dogs in a city, like, they would die. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, he, Achilles, like, was, grew up on a farm in Missouri. So when we brought him to New York City, like, he wouldn't even use the bathroom on the sidewalks because he was so used to, like, being on the farm. And especially, like, motorcycle going by. I'm sure you probably hear some in the background, like, yeah, cars everywhere, sirens, like, he was just overloaded and it took him a while to like get used to it. But now he kind of knows like, you know, if we're walking, he won't jump off the curb, like into the street. Yeah. He kind of knows the, just the boundaries of the, of the sidewalk and stuff, but it takes a little while. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being a country dog. And then um, all of a sudden dealing with all that stimulation, especially because you have your animal yeah. instincts. You're like, what the fuck's going to harm me? How do I trust all this? Yeah. So a car would go by and he would like hit the ground, right? Put his paws down, like what's happening? And now like he just doesn't care. Yeah, you, uh, yeah. Right. Same thing with people. Like anytime somebody would, you know, in New York, like you're passing somebody every few seconds. So at the beginning, he was like always like running up and trying to like play with everybody that passed him. And now he's just like a New Yorker, like he just ignores everybody. Right. <laughs> he just walks on, like doesn't care. Typically, he doesn't hold any doors. He pees wherever <laughs> he wants. It's just like, yeah, you're a New Yorker. Yeah. all right man well jake thank you for uh coming on sharing some dog stories sure um and Thanks for the me. fencing education i uh i appreciate all your time man and um whatever the future and brings I you dude i hope it treats you well i appreciate it likewise all right man enjoy the rest of your night and uh thanks you too bye bye thanks to andre psyche for supporting the getting to know you pod search up andre psyche on social media give him a follow just for the fuck of it Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.